Hey everybody, welcome back to the Liberty Portal Podcast. My name is Joe Sheehan, and uh, good to be back from vacation. I really missed being here. We've got an interesting show today, a guest in studio, a good friend of ours, and a lot of interesting things to talk about. To kick it off, we're going to start with a white pill and talk about some entrepreneurship in the movement for freedom with our special guest, who is Kendall Cotton. We'll introduce him here in a second. We're also going to chat about the Durham report, this investigation into the Russia collusion uh, investigation that turned out that the FBI was demonstrating the telltale signs of political partisanship and bias. Uh, imagine that. Here to talk about all these things, the usual suspect, David Rand. How are you, sir? Doing great. Great to have you back. And I know you're lying when you said you'd rather be here rather than running around well, Europe, I mean, taking an awesome videos, enjoying the family castle, right? You know uh, what? It was awesome. an absolute great time, but you can only drink so much Guinness and eat so much <laughs> shepherd's pie before you're just like, you know what? I'm ready to come back to the States and, and get back to work. And you know, that is one life. thing that I noticed when I was in Europe is just how limited of options they have there when it comes to goods. I mean, when you go to a grocery store, there's like two kinds of cheese, you know, or there's, you know, four or five beers. And I go to a grocery store here in America, it's like a hundred different beers, you know, like the scale of difference is just so enormous. It's interesting. I mean, I, I didn't experience that too much. I noticed that they were, every pub had the same eight beers or whatever, but they're like really good beers mm. for sure. You know, you're not, you're not uh, wanting for quality for sure, especially the Guinness. I mean, best Guinness I've ever had in my life was in Dublin, right? At Sheehan's Pub, which obviously you know, had to go. First stop was the namesake pub. It was great. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Um, but I think we got, we got some, they don't have a lot, they have a lack of diversity that would add a lot to the palate of the people of Great Britain. So For we sure. were looking into it and we're like, what are the trade barriers on moving alcohol around? And they're substantial. Yeah. It's wild. Wow. Yeah. There's a ton of grandfathering into like mm. old grandfathering in that yeah. allow for a lot of these, you know, uh, Newcastle or Rolling Rock or Guinness to kind of maintain the status quo, but get, to getting new ones, like taking a microbrewery beer from Montana, moving it to Scotland would crush. I bet it would crush. I mean, it's so would. great, Probably would. but the, the barriers are so huge. There's yeah. no way you could do it. Wow. That's like Adam Smith, like protectionism from the, the guilds back in the day, probably. Huh? Yep. Classic. Totally. Well, speaking of diversity, we've got our special guest, <laughs> Kendall Cotton joining us in the studio today from Frontier Institute. How are you today, Kendall? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Glad to have you. And uh, our boy Kyle back here on the ones and twos in the absence of Evan, he's doing all the research and all the button switching and everything. So, yep, I'm on double duty today. Double but duty. So, glad if anything, to see Kendall's here. If anything sucks, you can just blame him. <laughs> always my fault. Always oh, blame always, me. Always. Um, cool, David. Why don't you Why don't you lead us off here um, with our our white pill? Uh, we want to hear from Kendall as well, but why don't you kind of tee things up for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, first off, don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on this podcast. Hit that notification bell uh, so that folks know, you know, you can you can feed the algorithm so that they can feed us. Uh, yeah, so Kendall, starting off, like, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? All that kind of stuff. What's the bio to get What's you started? Bio? Yeah. Well, I'm uh, born and raised Montana. Grew up uh, in the Bitterroot Valley, the western part of the state. So I grew up uh, 100 yards from the Bitterroot River. It's a great fly fishing river. So I grew up you know, fishing down there all day long, playing in the river, duck hunting and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I really am passionate about this state and I love it here. 
So um, I currently have, am the founder and CEO of the Frontier Institute. So we're a free market think tank based in Helena, Montana. Awesome. That's great. And you and we have some history together. I mean, we were in Young Americans for Liberty together mm -hmm. back in the day, and that's that's when the three of us met, actually. Yeah. Which was a fun fun time of life, right? <laughs> when we all kind of got our start in uh, in politics. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recruited Kendall onto a campaign I was working at the time, and he was 18 years old. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. fresh out of high school, just getting started. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, hey, you should check out this, uh, this group of guys who are getting together to talk about politics and stuff. And that's how it started. And the rest is history. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I learned from that that basically, if you want to change the world, there's a couple different paths, but uh, one of the main ones is knocking on probably thousands of doors. Mm. <laughs> That's what I learned from Yeah, you. yeah, right, right. <laughs> I'm talking to everyday people yes. about the things that matter. That's how do you cut through a monolithic media environment where everyone's saying exactly the same thing and you can't get your message out well? Talking to people person to person, face to face at the door. It's a great step. Right. Yeah. So tell us about the mission and vision of Frontier. Yeah. Well, we believe in small, limited government. And we believe that when you make government small, you're going to allow people to thrive. So we believe in solving big problems with more freedom rather than more government. That's kind of our ethos. So other organizations out there are focused on building new government programs spending additional money or you know bringing the bacon home with tax credits or something like that but we're not interested in that our niche is we're focused on where government's a problem so when it, government gets in the way of people building homes starting a business or getting a job we break down those barriers so hopefully all montanans can thrive that's our mission so that's what we do and we're research focused and education focused so we bring in experts to provide you know, really critical information to a lot of our citizen legislators here in Montana about how their policies are going to actually affect people on the ground. We also develop solutions, help craft legislation. And uh, we also help build coalitions, to bring people together to get, you know, these reforms across the finish line. So that's, that's kind of what a think tank does, at least here at the state level. And, and I want to make note that if you're listening from another state, this is going to be relevant to you. We're going to be talking about things that can be duplicated in your state. We're going to be talking about things that uh, ways of entrepreneurship that might be meaningful for you and your state. So uh, please uh, stick around, listen to this stuff. And then at the end uh, or in the latter half, we'll get uh, Kendall's takes on some of the new stuff that's coming up. So that'll be fun. Um, so like, what are the accomplishments that uh, Frontier has been all the start? Actually, when did you start it? And what's the origin story? Tell me about the starting yeah. of it. Yeah, sure. Well, it's been a wild ride. I, I started, you know, just over two and a half year, half years ago, I think at this point, uh, Dave and I started talking about this a long time ago. Um, and I think that it, it really crystallized, um, right after the pandemic hit, you know, there was so much policy change happening at a rapid pace. And, uh, you know, I was looking at a new governor's administration getting elected to Montana. We were going to elect a new governor. And I was currently at that time, uh, working as a policy advisor for Montana's insurance commissioner. And, uh, I came in with that administration. It was a Republican administration. It was the first Republican administration in 20 years. And mm. so Democrats have been controlling the agency. So needless to say it, you know, when we walked in on day one, it was like drinking through a fire hose. You know, we had to put a stop to everything we didn't like the agency, the way it was being run. We had to put a stop to all the legislation that was moving forward from the agency that, you know, we weren't really fond of. And that was all before we could really even think about what we wanted to do. Um, and then even when we got to that point, the only people around us that we could really turn to at the state level for maybe some ideas were long, longtime lobbyists have been there for 30 years are representing industry interests. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't necessarily representing liberty and freedom. 
So um, I wished that back then I had an organization like Frontier that I was able to partner with and they would say, hey, here's 10 things you could do tomorrow that would help make Montana a better place by cutting regulations or you know shrinking the size of government. So I thought that the next governor of Montana was gonna be dealing with the exact same thing. And uh, I said, somebody's gotta create an organization like this. So um, there wasn't anything like that in Montana. And you know I kind of went out on a ledge and got a board together, founded the organization, got a little bit of seed money in the door. And uh, when I had a couple months of salary banked up, I said, okay, I, I'm going to quit my job and jump all into this and see how it goes. And that's how I got here. That's awesome. So, and, and like that desire to like, you wanted to fill a gap that you saw within that. How, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't have a sense for is that politics is kind of makeup of a network of different actors and institutions mm -hmm. that often isn't very visible, right? So think tanks kind of sit aside, right? Well, people watch the news, they hear about Republicans and Democrats, they hear about legislators and executive ag agencies. They don't really, they don't see a lot of that other stuff. Like what's going on in the bureaucracies? What are the, what are the problems that they face and how do they actually create, how do the, how do ideas that exist shape them? And then how do they actually change policy or change laws? Right. Um, and I think that's an interesting one that because we, it, it requires someone to identify a real gap in that and then exploit that in like a normal market process, but you're doing yeah. it with a nonprofit, a 501c3. That's right? right. We are a nonprofit. And so, yeah, we, you know, we exist off, to, off of donations. We're not creating a product and selling it or anything like that. But, you know, I guess in a sense, the product that we are selling is strategic vision. So we are not, you know, bogged down in kind of the process of politics where you have to win elections, you have to, you know, uh, manage those, those relationships in the hallways with your fellow legislators or something like that. We are uh, interested in playing the long game. Mm. And so, you know, that's kind of the value that we provided the conversation because we can say, okay, you know, it's not just about the win and lose, you know, ups and downs of the political cycle or campaigns. It's about the long-term vision. How are we going to bring the wins home? make Montana a more free place and a more prosperous place. And that's what we can dedicate a lot of time to thinking about. And legislators, when they have to pass laws and win elections, they don't have time to think about that. And they're just not, that's not their comparative advantage. And that's ours. Mm. And oh. so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I want to hear about some of those wins you're talking about. Yeah. Because I know you guys have had a lot of success in the, the time you've been sure. around. Yeah. Well, you, that, that's one thing we found is that, you know, legislators were hungry for ideas, especially in Montana. I mean, these people are like farmers and ranchers, a lot of our legislators. And so, you know, they walk in the door and they say, I want to do something about this affordable housing crisis in the state. You know, people in my town can't afford to buy a home. What can we do about this? And uh, we're able to partner with them on that big idea and say, okay, here's some constructive solutions. You know, we've done the research. We kind of know what some of the problems are here. And we become a legislator's research team. And so we help craft legislation. And so this time around, this last year, um, actually just today, we're celebrating a big win. Uh, the governor actually signed um, a huge sweeping package of zoning reforms that are actually going to help address this affordable housing crisis that we're dealing with here in Montana. Um, four or five different bills that we are directly involved with, with helping craft and uh, navigate through the legislative process. And uh, it's a big deal. These are reforms that other states have been like just trying to pass forever and they haven't been able to get it done. And we were able to shift the window and get it done in a matter of two years, really building a coalition and getting it done. Mm. So it, it, we're, we're definitely celebrating today. That's, that's great. Awesome. That's what's Cheers awesome. to that. Yeah, Ooh. absolutely.
As someone who's looking to buy a home, I appreciate everything you're doing to try to bring some affordability back to this area. Thank you. Thank thank you. you. Well, and it's, you know, it's a bright spot too. I think what we did, and you were a part of that, Joe, you helping us put together that video that we, that promotional video that we did for a research report that we put out called the Montana Zoning Atlas. And that was, um, you know, part of our effort to demonstrate how bad some of these regulations are that prevent the construction of affordable types of homes in Montana cities. And so we created this, you know, interactive map that made it crystal clear to legislators, you know, how bad the problem was and where you could build things where you couldn't in these cities. And uh, one of the things we did is we were able to approach this issue, not from like a partisan way, but in a, in a really from all angles, all political angles, we had folks on our promotional video talking about climate change, you know, the benefits of having denser, more walkable cities. You don't have to rely so much on cars. We also had people talking about, you know, kind of the social justice aspects, making sure that we're having, you know, homes that people can afford. And then we had, you know, folks like myself and, and, and you know, other free market advocates who were saying, this is about property rights. You know, this is about making sure that property owners can do what they want with their own property as long as they're not hurting anybody else. So, yeah, that was a, that was a really cool thing. And I don't think that you see that a lot in especially national politics. Everything's tribal. Absolutely. No. Yeah, when the cooperative aspect was really compelling to me. And I really appreciated that there were there was that diversity, even all the way up to developers who were saying, look, we want to build affordable, mm-hmm. but we just can't because of X, Y, and Z regulatory thing that's standing in our way. So that was yeah. really cool. That's right. And, and when, when transformation happens in politics right now, it seems like it has to be what I call transpartisan, meaning mm-hmm. it's not just Republicans and Democrats. It's all of the interest parties of those two groups that feed into and shape the idea space for them. So on the federal level where that happened recently was, you know, when with Trump in criminal justice reform, you had Republicans saying, this doesn't make sense. We're spending tremendous amount of money on federal prisons. We want to cut this so that we could have, you know, more money in taxpayer wallets. And then you had, you know, Kim Kardashian in the left saying, hey, this is wrong to lock people up for all this time and not give them a way out and not allow them to, especially non-violent drug offenders, uh, to get out of the situation they're in. It, it's, it's actually you're becoming more and more rare that you can just shove things through with a single partisan angle, even in Montana, where we had a supermajority. Right, right, absolutely. And that's actually, you know, one of the things that we've done strategically, we've tried to look at areas where there is, you know, we have a sense of, of potential for bipartisan cooperation. And we've tried to kind of focus our efforts in those areas so that potentially, you know, this is something that is a win-win in, across the board, you know, that, that it isn't just a one-sided, lopsided victory. It's something that we create buy-in and build bridges on across the whole political spectrum. And I think, you know, thinking about the long game, thinking about long-term, buying people into the liberty movement, uh, that's, I think that's how we become successful. Mm, absolutely. I find that we do often in this movement get a little stuck in the idea space and that the practical application is sort of left wanting people are like well show me it show me it working Mm. and it seems like the work that you guys are doing is bridging that gap between ideas and action what are some of the other aspects of legislation that you guys have been working on in the last couple of years yeah one of the other big challenges in montana is our healthcare shortages um healthcare is a you know it's, it's it's frankly it's just a challenge to deliver in montana because we have such a big state and an empty state so we have a lot of population centers with a whole lot of nothing in between. So that makes it very challenging to get people the care they need when they need it. We have, you know, something like 12 counties without a local primary care doctor there who can, you know, be the first point of contact for patients when they're sick. And it ends up being, you know, they have to drive the billings or something like that to go see a doctor just to get checked out, not even to fix an issue. Um, and then, you know, if you talk about specialists, that's even harder. So people are driving to Salt Lake or they're driving to Denver or Seattle to go see a specialist. And of course, 
there's a lot of regulatory problems in that space. Lice, uh, uh, occupational licensure is something that you know has been talked to death, but it is a big problem, and the effects are real here in Montana. Um, we had barriers where it took you know it takes doctors something like three or four months to get licensed, you know, coming in from another state to practice in Montana, even though wow. they already, they already, you know, say they're already licensed in Wyoming and they hop across the border to treat a patient in Montana, they have to go through that whole licensing process. Wow. And that, that's, that's, I mean, you, you, we have so many people moving here right now. They want to live in Montana. We probably have lots of doctors, honestly, wanting to retire here and maybe continue practicing, but that factors into their calculus of whether to stay in the market or not. The other issues we're looking at is that we have a lot of practitioners who are already in these communities, but they're hamstrung in their ability to actually care for patients. So one of the, the ideas that we put forward this legislative session was to expand the, they call it the scope of practice of pharmacists. Um, so really what it was allowing pharmacists to do is it was freeing them up to use their training to prescribe like minor medications to patients. So if a patient walks into the drugstore and says, I think I have strep throat. They say, oh, that's easy. Let's do a test and see if you have strep throat. And so they do a test. And if they have strep throat, they can give them their prescription <laughs> and on their way. Instead of saying, well, you got to go see your doctor and set an appointment, you know, and then three days later, it's even worse. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and in these rural areas, that's a big problem because in these, you know, those rural counties I mentioned that don't have a primary care physician, they probably have a drugstore. They probably mm, have a pharmacist sure. there. Mm, yeah. So freeing up the pharmacist to kind of fill the gaps is a big deal in this state. And we, we got that done this legislative session. We partnered with the Montana Pharmacy Association, helped craft a bill that they felt comfortable about. And uh, we helped educate lawmakers and, you know, get it done. So that's, that's a big win. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you've had other ones in, in for example, certificate of need and mm -hmm. direct patient care. Do you want to unpack those ones? Because I think those are yeah. really indicative. And we see those similar things those boundaries and in other industries, but healthcare is one of those ones that's such a high salience issue. Salience is like people know about it as a problem, right? They're aware that there's a problem in healthcare that's expensive right. and hard to get to and takes a long time and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about that, there are other opportunities in that space, but if we had a huge win in 2021, sorry, yeah. uh, on, on those two bills, do you want to unpack those? Yeah. Yeah. We, it's been a great couple legislative sessions for, for healthcare, for free market healthcare, actually. Right. Um, and you know, so free market healthcare, I think it's important for the audience to remember that we don't have a free market for healthcare in America. We just don't, we haven't had one for probably 110, 115 years. It actually started with occupational licensing back in the 1910s. We didn't have licensing for doctors before that. And in fact, we had during like the 1880s, we had the most physicians per capita out of any other country in the world. Physicians of all types, like osteopaths, like allopaths, naturopaths, mm. you know, a bunch of different schools. But once we introduced licensing, we ended up, we started the down this road of a bunch of shortages. So yes, uh, one of the kind of remnants of a lot of these supply constraints has been these certificate of need laws that you mentioned. And uh, we, they're referred to as con laws a lot of times. Montana was one of the, you know, the 30 something states. Is that right, Dave? That I still so. have them? Yeah. yeah. One of the 30 something states that still had these laws in the books. And they were put in place in the 1970s under this flawed assumption that putting constraints around the supply of healthcare facilities was going to lead to people using healthcare less and was going to save Medicare money. So that, right. you know, obviously doesn't, doesn't even you know, work like logically from a supply and <laughs> yeah. demand perspective, yeah. but president Nixon was very keen on it. And so that's, that's how this all started. And then once you introduce some sort of regulation like that, 
it, what it did is it ended up protecting the industry incumbents. Yeah. So what happens under certificate of need is that if I have an idea for starting up a, I see a need in my community and I say, we need another you know, home healthcare business to go treat people in their homes. Um, I'm going to start up an agency. The certificate of need process requires me to go get a certificate from the government uh, that certifies that there's a demonstrated need for my business. And then it's even worse than that. Then they go and survey all your competitors and ask them, uh, do you think this is going to cut into your bottom line? Do you think we need this extra business in this marketplace? And uh, that's, I mean, that's something that you see out of like communist Russia or something like that. It, it, you don't expect that to be in America. Right. right. That was right here in Montana. So mm -hmm. we, we had certificate of need in place for multiple different healthcare businesses that, you know, actually were very critical to our pandemic response. That was something that we talked about. You know, we didn't want to be squeezing people into ER rooms and into the hospitals. We wanted to be able to treat people at home, but we required certificates of need to be able to expand home healthcare businesses. Mm. We were actually denying applications right at the beginning of the pandemic that would have, you know, certainly helped to have a little additional capacity when we were struggling <laughs> for beds, you know, right, people right. on ventilators. Yeah. So uh, uh, we ended up spearheading legislation that uh, completely repealed uh, all but one uh, certificate of need law. The one left is for, for nursing homes, but those are kind of an entirely different animal. But mm. um, yeah, that was probably the most significant reform to certificate of needs in like you know three or four years nationally. And we were able to get it done in Montana. Um, so that was a big, big win. That's awesome. And I think it demonstrates a really interesting thing. I mean, you hear a lot in politics about the use of a crisis to create this response or, you know, some sort of policy that typically you know, will restrict liberty. You know, mm -hmm. they, they tend to use it a lot in that way. Mm -hmm. But this is an example of it going the exact opposite direction. And I think that's a really fantastic thing. And a lot of other cool opportunities emerged around the pandemic, uh, right? Like, you know, restaurants and, and like breweries, for example, could sell curbside, which I know is such a minor thing compared to healthcare, but yeah. it was like a, a big deal for these businesses who were on the edge of maybe staying in business or maybe going out of business. So right. I think it's a really interesting example of, of using a crisis we were all going through to help make everybody freer mm -hmm. to live better lives. And that's yeah. like, that's like the, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. Exactly. That applies to the government and the growth of the government, but it applies to us too mm -hmm. strategically, right? Because when something, when, when it's a problem people are aware of and you can bring a solution, you say that pollution, that, that solution has no cost to the taxpayer. It'll expand the supply and therefore increase affordability and accessibility. And you can go back to your constituents and you can say you cut government while you did that. Yep. That's an all win for everybody, right? And the only, only difference is if your vision is that all, the only way to get to equitable healthcare is if the government right. manages it all. And we see it a different equitable healthcare will happen when we have abundant healthcare. It's two different visions. We are either going right. to get there by uh, restraining people and transferring funds and wealth and, and access, or we get there through abundance, which is that's just right. the core different, different, you know, difference of vision. And that's yeah. actually a, a kind of an emerging vision. Um, I'm seeing nationally where it's, it's kind of this consensus among both the left wing and right wing folks that we need to embrace this idea of abundance. And we do that through eliminating constraints on supply and, and, America, that means all of these different regulations that constrain building businesses, getting jobs, building homes, building energy projects, you know, mm -hmm. all the things we need to build in America are so constrained by our regulatory environment. And what we're seeing is this uh, kind of emerging um, new animal in politics of a supply side liberal, supply side progressive who wants to tackle the big progressive issues like climate change but they actually are starting to see our side where that we've been saying all along on the free market side that regulations are standing in the way 
of building wind and, wind and solar or building nuclear, mm-hmm. things that would actually address this problem. Right. right. Putting more power in the hands of the incumbent corporate entities that mm-hmm. would prefer not to have their industry uh, cash cow disrupted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then we also mentioned uh, direct patient care, which yeah. is an interesting one because the parallels there are also substantial when you have these government bearers that require you to take insurance in order to be a medical provider. Yeah. So do you want to unpack that? Yeah, sure. Well, so that that's, you know, we're talking about white pill, you know, DPC is what they call a direct patient care, but that that is a white pill for me. It gives me hope about the future because, you know, what we actually see in, you know, countries that have gone down this road of socialized medicine is that they're coming all the way full circle back to this DPC. And, and what it is, is it's truly free market healthcare. It's patients uh, offering up dollars to doctors to provide them services. And so what what uh, most of these member, they're, they're mostly a, a membership-based model. It's kind of like a Netflix subscription for healthcare. And so in Montana, at least, what a lot of these have looked like is paying $70 a month, and that's like less than a cell phone bill for a lot of people, to get unlimited access to comprehensive primary care. So they'll go in and stitch you up. They'll go in and do your annual exam or even however many exams you want. You can text your doctor. They'll even do house calls like the old school, you know, physicians used to do and uh, come to your house on a Sunday if you think your kid's sick. And, uh, and it's no insurance, no middlemen involved. They're not, most of these doctors have opted out of the system. They're saying, we don't want any part of the government healthcare system. We don't want to mess with Medicare, Medicaid, insurance billing. We don't want these middlemen insurance companies telling us how to do our job, which is what these bureaucracies have become. And uh, they just want to treat patients. And so that's, you're seeing a a big movement in Montana, uh, at least, and I think nationally too, of doctors opting out of the system, embracing this free market model of patients and doctors uh, agreeing on a on a uh, on, on a price mm. for healthcare, on a free price, a freely determined price, and uh, what we did in Montana for legislation is, you know, these these doctors who are opting out of the system were under threat from regulators. Regulators actually wanted to treat these memberships, like these Netflix type subscription models, as uh, insurance, uh, even though there's no risk or indemnity involved. Like there, nothing about this is insurance. Um, but, uh, insure, insurance regulators across the country have been very skeptical of this stuff for a long time. And so what we did in Montana is we kind of got ahead of the curve and we carved out this free market model of healthcare and said, government can't touch this. You know, people are allowed to do this. Doctors are free to offer memberships to patients. And we've, since then we've seen just an explosion. I think the number of DPC providers in Montana have doubled and that means thousands more patients can get access to cheap, affordable, good healthcare. Healthcare where you're not walking into the doctor's office, you know, for a 15-minute exam, and most of it's, you know, checking in boxes on a clipboard. These are people who who invest in you and will show up at your house even and text you and, and figure out what's wrong. And we're talking about what kind of price per month is usual for DPC? In Montana, the average is seventy dollars a month. So if you look what what a lot of people are a doing. Gym membership. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's, it's more affordable than a lot of gym memberships, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and what a lot of people are doing who are opting out of the system and moving towards this free market healthcare model, it's not all just wacky libertarians either. I mean, the regular average folks uh, see the benefit of this model because when you take out all the middlemen out of all the government, you know, middlemen, all the bureaucracies out of healthcare, you get back to a truly great service where doctors are providing you um, something that's really valuable and is what they're willing to pay for. 
Um, and so what a lot of people are doing is they're, they're using this monthly membership to cover their everyday needs. You know, they're, they're, you know, if they think they're sick with the flu and they want to go get checked out or something like that, they can get that handled. And then they, you know, get like the most catastrophic plan that they can find, you know, in the insurance marketplace or even opt for like a health share uh, organization. And uh, that covers their hit by the bus stuff if they break their leg or something like that. Then they can go get that fixed in the, in the hospital. Um, but for, you know, everyday folks who are dealing with normal issues, especially younger folks, even DPC is a great option. And it's a very affordable option. If you look at Obamacare, you know, insurance plans, yeah. and you compare that to what $70 a month would get you. Mm. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you uh, like a personal story about this is really interesting because of how yeah. insurance really determines so much what happens. And when it comes to the end point of healthcare, I got a, I got into a car wreck forever going. I was like in my early twenties, right? Just being stupid. And uh, I've always had a, like a problem with the stabilizer between my scapula. It's called a rhomboid, right? And it's like a muscle unit for the pulling. And uh, I ran into a problem where I had really hurt my back and I was having a hard time and I went to a physical therapist and I was trying to get in shape and I kept mm. hit hurting this back over and over and over again. So this physical therapist, he tried this technique called dry needling, which helped me a ton. Like it's not, it's not acupuncture. It's different than that, but it like it way it messes with the muscles and like allows you to work out very specific muscle groups mm. and change that are hard to get to, especially when they're underdeveloped because mine were, because I, while I was strong, I wasn't strong with those specific muscles and they kept straining themselves and I couldn't just work out those. So he would, he would put those in and it would help compensate for that. And I ended up getting healed. Right. I mean, it was really, I mean, it was the I went there for like two years doing this while I was getting into shape and while I was, you know, building my athleticism. And I, so I was doing great. I, I got out of doing more working out, just bodybuilding type stuff. And I started doing jujitsu and I, and I, and I suffered a minor injury, went in one day and he was like, well, I'm sorry, I can't provide any liberty anymore. It's not covered by insurance. Mm. I'm like, why? And he, and, 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 you know, now it was going from, you know, 60 bucks to visit him, you know, 50 bucks to visit him. I mean, sometimes when we hit our cap, it's like $20 to visit the, um, the physical therapist for, for a dry needle. Uh, it was now $250 wow. to visit him because it doesn't cover by insurance anymore. It doesn't go against my deductible, all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, I'm like, why? And he said, well, Medicaid decided that dry needling doesn't qualify as a good a recommended care or some, I can't remember the category. And so now all the insurance companies are doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's like, but, but it would have helped me. Like it really would have helped me in this circumstance. And like at the end point this, and I was like, bro, you got to go to like direct patient care. Cause he knows his BS. He hates it. He wants to be able to help people, but he can't. Right. Cause no one's gonna be able to afford it now. Well, right. I, I'm curious there because like, is that $250? Is that what he just would charge? market rate for it yeah. or is that what he bills insurance for that's what because he's he knows he's going to get much less from it right that's correct there right. is the, there is a difference there so for sure so they you know doctors often overbill for services because they know that they're only the insurance is only going to allow so much of an expense to be to be paid out by them right yeah you know i encourage people if they're going into that even especially a hospital um you know oftentimes if you are covered by an insurance plan uh, you never even get exposed to a price. You know, I don't think oftentimes they don't even talk about it. They just say, hey, we'll send you a bill after you're done. Um, and you don't care because you're covered by insurance, right? You're paying your monthly membership. You're supposed to not care. But oftentimes if you ask, you know, what's the cash price for this? And, you know, you don't even reveal that you're an insurance um, member. Uh, oftentimes the cash price is way cheaper and you can negotiate it. 
you can use your individual agency to negotiate the payment down. Um, and that's something that a lot of hospitals do. In fact, there's a hospital um, that's uh, not, you know, before with DPC, we're talking about like primary care, kind of your everyday stuff. There's actually a surgery center in Oklahoma right now. It, uh, it's called the, uh, actually, aren't they called the free market surgery center? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, interesting. It's Oklahoma surgery center, I guess. Um, but anyway, their model is completely cash based and they are, they post all their prices on their website. And that's not something that you see in healthcare nowadays. And you can go browse whatever service you need, go book it and you know, the price up front. So for a knee, knee replacement, for example, they can say right away, it costs 12 grand all in. You know, so if you can get to the hospital, we can do it for 12 grand. And uh, that's amazing. And, mm-hmm. and that shows the, just the power of, you know, uh, individuals using their agency and, uh, and, and agreeing and, and trading goods and services in a free marketplace. And one of the things I was going to mention about why this whole movement towards free market medicine makes me hopeful is because, you know, and especially in America, as you guys know, we're headed, we've been headed down for a long time towards just expanding and getting to the place where we have a single payer healthcare system. We have government controlled healthcare, like a lot of some of these European countries have gone to. But what's what we're seeing in places like Germany, places like Spain, is that um, you know those countries people don't want to wait in line for their healthcare. They don't want to wait months to go to the doctor's office. And so if they can afford it, they're starting to opt out. And what the op- option looks like when you opt out is free market healthcare. Mm-hmm. You're paying a membership to go see a doctor. Mm-hmm. The problem is is that that's a very painful way to get back to the solution of just allowing doctors and patients to work together. Right. Right. Especially when you increase supply while you're doing these other things, right? Yeah. And that's the really critical thing is you have to hit it from different angles simultaneously. If you just do direct patient care, but you don't address, you know, the fact that there's just a limited supply of doctors and medical yeah. providers and, and the things that they can do is so heavily regulated, like physician assistants, for example, yeah. you know, they have to, you know, they have to be managed by a doctor for their entire career. They can't ever do anything, even though they're highly qualified, well-trained to do a wide range of scope of practice, they have to be managed by doctors. And if you say we should change this, the doctors show up and say, if we change this, people will die, you know, and <laughs> legislators go, Oh, well, I don't want that to happen. But that happened this year, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we also got uh, K-12 education reform. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that is uh, such an exciting area uh, for, for, for me and a lot of people in Montana, because, you know, Montana for a long time was behind the curve uh, in America. Um, lots of other states had more options for our children's education. Children, families were able to, if they wanted to, choose uh, to go to a charter school. Uh, uh, charter schools are more innovative. They're, or they're allowed more flexibility to design more kind of custom curriculums, um, oftentimes uh, targeted at individual learning needs. So, for example, there's, there's charter schools that are focused on uh, students with um, dyslexia um, or autism, things like that. So charter schools are allowed kind of a, a regulatory flexibility to get around a lot of that school licensing stuff that we impose on schools at the state level. So charter schools, uh, Montana was one of the last five states that didn't have a law authorizing charter schools. And this legislate, this legislature, we finally passed a law to get that done. Um, and it's sitting on the governor's desk. I, I hope that it's going to be signed any day, but, um, that's a big deal for students in Montana. Um, the other, the other uh, big win that we're very excited about is uh, Montana has its first, officially, they passed a bill to authorize the first education savings account for students with special needs. And that's a, that's a really big deal. Um, this is something that we're seeing, I think it's eight states now, is that right, have mm-hmm. done this? They are allowing um, families 
to take their student's share of public education dollars, the dollars that the state allocates to each school for, it, for each student. In Montana, it's something like $13,000 we're paying per student to educate in our public school system, in our government schools. And they're saying, you can take a portion of that and use it for any education option that you want. So if you're homeschooling, you can use it to purchase curriculum. If you uh, need to send your kid to a private school, more focused learning environment, you can use it to pay tuition there. And it allows these families, you know, right now, the families with an option are the families that can afford it. And that's one of the sad realities of our government-run school education system. Um, and so it allows the families who can't afford it, who can't afford to pay for private school tuition, to, to get there and to have that option. And uh, that's amazing. And there's lots of, you know, conservative voices that have been champions for education freedom, but it is so important from a libertarian free market perspective too, because what we're doing is we're, we're, we're uh, um, putting marketplace competition back into the healthcare system. And so hopefully- Or education system. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> education no, system. Good, yeah. And so hopefully- right. it's, it's both. That's like, these are connected. These are the same right. issue, right? right? We're expanding the supply of education in order to create improvements. Yeah. It's not just price improvements too, right? We're-, we're Innovation. We're, you can't regulate yourself into quality, mm -hmm. right? The more regulations you put on public schools, it doesn't necessarily improve outcomes, right? The more you certify teachers, it doesn't actually make more teachers better teachers. Right. It requires market forces, which are, which are non-stated, they're not regulations that what they are is incentives to for better behavior and delivering a better product, which can't just be done by a bureaucrat just deciding, well, we're just going to improve education. We're going to write a bill that says yeah. better education. That's not how that works. You know, that's how, it, that's how it always goes in government. The story is, Hey, let's spend a couple million more and we'll have, you know, we'll have a better education system. And that's, that is like epistemologically unsound, right? Like it's, it's like, that's, if, if you want something better, you have to allow discovery. You have to allow people to innovate and you can't just force it by throwing more money at it. It's interesting because you mentioned it's, it makes so much sense from a free market libertarian perspective. But what I also hear you saying is it makes sense from sort of a social justice perspective. You said only the kids that can afford private school, only the parents that can afford to send their kids to a special education mm -hmm. are going to get the, you know, the maximum out of that service sounds like with something like an education savings account, the, the kids whose parents can't afford it are now getting sort of a level footing, an ability to get a, an education that really suits them specifically. So it seems like something that, again, we can sort of achieve this bipartisan or, you know, tr uh, multipartisan or whatever you said before kind of perspective, right? right. Lots of people on, on multiple sides of the aisle let's say, can, can get behind something like this. Well, and in, some, in states with large urban populations, that's true, right? So if you look at like Washington, D.C. has a school choice program. Uh, Louisiana has school choice programs. Uh, Arizona has school choice programs. Uh, and they're most popular in urban areas with failing public schools. Um, and then you have this alliance between like kind of free market thinking Republicans and Democrats who are, who are, are doing a good job representing those areas and the interests of those areas. Yeah. We don't see that in Montana. Montana is a very partisan issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and mostly because there's a consolidating, uh, uh, external factor, uh, on the left. And that is the public employee unions mm -hmm. who do not allow the Democrats to step out of line on this issue. I mean, it is just, it is, I mean, did we get a single Democrat on any education reform? Maybe, no. maybe interdistrict transfer and, uh, I don't think part-time education. Yeah. Maybe, I, I, I think, I think we had, we maybe got a couple of Democrats there, but so interdistrict transfer is allowing a student from one district public school to go to another one. 
Gotcha. Right. And you know, the A and B money, that's what the kids and butts and seats over time per kid. That is the amount that they get from the state that follows the student. In that case, charter school is just saying, do that, but allow a private company to run a school that's sure. publicly open and, and your kid and the NBA funny money. Well, money to moves clarify, with them. in Montana, it's not even a private company. It actually right. has to be a nonprofit. Right, 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 right. So it's, you know, in Montana, to form a charter school under this new law, when it will get signed, um, it's parents getting to, like education entrepreneurs getting together and forming a board, their own school board, and being accountable to the state to deliver on their performance goals. Um, so they're actually even more held more accountable than the current government school system is, you know, because right. that's those places are sinkholes for money, you oh, know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is this is so important, and it's interesting in Montana. I think that um, the school unions are just they they have kind of consolidated power, like you're saying, and in Montana, you know, kind of like we were saying with the healthcare, it's a challenging state for education because we have. You know, towns that don't have any other major population center in a couple of hours around them. Mm-hmm. And so if a kid, you know, in a town of 100 people, you're probably not going to have, you know, the demand to go and create a private school, right. you know, in a traditional sense. Right. But uh, one of the things that Education Freedom Advocates say is that, like, we don't know what the future could look like. We need to let people innovate and figure out the best way to deliver uh, um, education in these areas. And we know that the current way isn't working. And so why keep spending money on it? Well, additionally that if, if you believe that justice is fairness as leftists do, right? John Rawls, if you, is that what you believe? Is it fair to have that family who's homeschooling in Ronan, right? In the middle of nowhere and they're homeschooling and they're paying $12,000 a year in property taxes and then not reaping any benefit of the word for their own kid. And they're saying like, well, they can get $12,000 in order to create educational experiences for them in order to help them, you know, well, like subsidize them for getting, you know, on the job training, uh, online courses, uh, books, laptops, all the things that, you know, ag- that, that public school students get access to. They don't get that. In fact, it's not their money. It's the public school's money. Right. And they call that school choice and they call that fairness. It's not yeah. fair. Yeah, exactly. It's That's inherently unfair. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you could say, oh, it's not fair for you know, someone without a kid to pay into the public school system. Sure. But we're, we're saying that's like infrastructure, but then once that infrastructure applies to kid, it's about the kid's success. Right. Right. And it's, it's, it's about the kid's ability to realize their individual potential, not, you know, the system's ability to exercise control over kids and influence the future of the country and all the things that we actually have when we're debating, you know, public education. Yeah. And that's actually, so my organization, we make a strong distinction between school choice and education freedom. There's a difference. And a lot of people don't make that difference when they're, when they're speaking about these issues. But mm. you know, the difference between school choice and education freedom is with choice, your choice is, you know, is offered to you by the system. And it says you either can have you know, the yellow option or the red option. You know? And um, you don't really have the option to choose whatever you want. Education freedom, we're saying we're, we're going to allow people to create the education that they want to have um, and to have the opportunity to do that. Mm. That's what f- the freedom's all about. Yeah. And I think that's the ultimate goal. The, go- the goal shouldn't be just to having another choice in the current government system. The goal should be allowing people the freedom to do and achieve anything. I love that. One is the illusion of choice. The other one is sort of this open landscape for you to explore whatever type of education best suits the learner's needs. Right. 
It's a beautiful thing. And it's a fundamental different model of how education should work of like, what, what are we trying to do? Are we just trying to get kids to do basic things or are we trying to inspire them to be lifelong learners that realize their potential and contribute to society? And if it's the latter, it's not going to be a top-down decided question. And even within the school choice movement, what you're right about is if we don't, if we're not vigilant about other ways that we can, that, that can create influence and homogenize from the private sector, even when it comes to accreditation of, of public or private schools, or if you write the bill that gives you school choice, but it says your choice is private school, charter school, or public school is like, well, what about pod learning environments? What about homeschool? What about like all these other innovative things that are out there? And we want to create a system that is flexible for that. And fundamentally, fundamentally, this is important for a lot of conservatives to hear that fundamentally believes in people mm. that believes in the ability of parents to care about their kids, realizing their potential. And if you start there, you start with that. And that's the, that's the belief in freedom. It starts there, right? If you don't believe in people, but you believe in freedom, you, you got to reconcile that contradiction. True. That belief in pre- people and their, and their incentive to care about their kids' well-being, start there and then build your program. I think we're getting to a much, a much a spot that's going to more closely emulate what we see in a free society. Mm-hmm. Uh, that does the best by kids yeah. too. I mean, I was just thinking, how, how oppressive is our current education model where we say, Okay, wherever you're born, that's what you get. You get whatever we give you, whatever we can provide. And, uh, you know, your parents are just kind of coerced Mm. into shelling out their property tax dollars to fund the local school, even if it's something that is completely against, you know, everything that they believe about the proper education for their child. And, you know, I'm not saying that in in some culture warrior sense. I'm saying that, you know, what if, you know, my value for my kid is focusing on, you know, STEM courses, it's focusing on science, or, or maybe it's focusing on, cla- uh, you know, liberal arts. Um, those are choices that parents should be allowed to make. And right now our system just constrains their choices. And, you know, in a lot of ways, shames the people who want to break outside of that paradigm. Definitely. Yeah, it seems like the, the trend as of late has been more towards removing parents' involvement and choice versus, you know, giving them more mm-hmm. of that unfortunately, but hopefully, I mean, things like this are obviously examples of moving in the other direction. And, and that's a great thing to see. Yeah. So we also had, I mean, you have some interesting products on state and local spending, mm. I think was an, an interesting contribution that Frontier made that yeah. a lot of people haven't. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, you know, is a, is a big deal in Montana is uh, property taxes are going up and that's making it really hard for people, you know, a lot of people to even stay in their homes. Um, you know, people, especially on fixed incomes, elderly, elderly folks who, um, you know, can't afford a 25% increase in your taxes year over year. You know, that's wild. Uh, but that's happening in some communities in Montana. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people pointing fingers saying, you know, oh, well, it's the increased demand in our housing market. People move in here. It's those rich people from California that are causing this problem. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, fundamentally anti-human. We'll put that aside for, for, for now. But uh, what, what we investigated is, okay, well, what, what role is you know, government spending playing in all this? And we charted out over time just the growth of these big cities in Montana and the growth of their budgets and compared that to kind of a good measure of you know, where spending should be at if it's growing kind of to meet the demands of population growth and inflation and things like that. And um, we, we compared those two and we found that these local budgets were growing just astronomically compared to the growth of the local economy. And so we said, there's your problem. If you're concerned about taxes, 
you should be at your city council right now telling them why are you spending our tax dollars uh, with reckless abandon? You know, you have got to get this under control and at least limit the growth of spending to be in line with, you know, the people moving here and the actual needs of the community. Um, so, you know, it's not about going in and, you know, pointing at one thing that these local governments are spending money on. It's everything. It's, it's the, the, the entire system. And it's all built around this idea that the sky's the limit on spending. And there's, n there's no limit that we should consider. It's if something's in the public interest, whatever that is determined by our elected leaders, then spending money on it is going to benefit the community. And that's not right. What is going to benefit the community is keeping spending low, keeping taxes low so people can keep more money in their pockets, have more opportunities to stay in their home, to invest in other things, pay for their kids' education or whatever those opportunities look like. Right. Because you can solve the problem without taxing and spending money on it. Right. Like, like that there's not just one way to solve the problem, but those government actors, especially local government actors, largely go unseen in what they do. Mm -hmm. right? We have a lot of dialogue. We'll talk later about the debt ceiling on the federal level. And of course, you know, we debate about the state budget and stuff like that during session. But then no one talks about the local government's budget and what's the impact that it's having on property taxes. There's no real incentive or accountability mechanism for the average taxpayer to know what's going on there. Right. All they do is get a new bill in the mail yeah. and they got to pay it, right? Yeah. If they don't pay it, they go to jail. Like there's no, yeah. they don't really get a mechanism to be like, how do yeah. I, how do I do that? And then additionally that because it's so unseen, your average, you know, mayor or city council person doesn't really have an incentive to like go out and say, Hey, we're broke. You know, we got to cut spending. Right. Or yeah. they're just spending every dollar that comes yeah. in as property taxes rise. They're just like, well, we got to spend it all. We can't send, we can't yeah. cut taxes. Well, one, right. of, one of the most insidious things that I've you know witnessed throughout you know our focus on local budgets has been when you know these local leaders are approached with legitimate concerns about the growth of spending, they you know essentially demean their their constituents and just get into the weeds on, well, you just don't understand. You know, we work with the budget all day long, and so we need this money for X, Y, Z. And uh, you're, you just don't have a perspective here. And that is just so demeaning because um, clearly if you chart it out and you zoom out, you look at the big picture, we demonstrated very clearly that there is a big problem, that spending is contributing to the growth of property taxes, that government spending too much and so they need more revenue in the form of taxes. And uh, one of the things we hope to achieve by giving that kind of research and powerful information out to individuals is that they could walk into city council meetings and hopefully have a leg to stand on to say, I don't care, you know, whatever you're saying in the weeds on this particular line item, if you zoom out, it's clear we're spending too much. And so our elected leaders must make the tough decisions. It's their job as elected leaders to actually go in now and figure out where do we cut spending? So that's uh, that's hopefully what we can do, and uh, we've gotten a lot of good feedback on that on that report. A lot of legislators enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You two know much better than I do, but wasn't there a piece of legislation in the Montana session uh, this go around that would have sort of uh, capped local government spending proportionate to population growth or economic growth? Yeah. And that, that didn't make it through, as I understand, unfortunately. It, it didn't make it, no. It, it's it's going to be an ongoing conversation for yeah. sure. Um, but it was a it was a really great uh, just way to, to kind of get this all out in the open and yeah. finally have these, you have know. Have the conversation. Have the conversation, yeah. exactly. It was, a, it was a great advertisement for your analysis. That, yeah. <laughs> that at the end of the day, at minimum, it was that. If not, I mean, it put the local governments on notice. Mm -hmm. And we saw this uh, when we introduced uh, campus free speech bills. Uh, soon after, you know, the... the 
universities were changing their free speech rules, right? <laughs> right? Because they saw legislation coming, even though they got vetoed by the governor in 2019, you know, the university started changing their policies. And then, uh, you know, with affordable housing, mm-hmm. affordable housing comes up, it becomes a major issue. We start bringing bills, yeah. you know, they start saying, well, but we're planning on it now. You know, like, like <laughs> oh, we haven't sure. done anything in 20 years, but now we're, we got a new condo coming in. You'll see, <laughs> you know, like it's, they, they don't want to have their power encroached on by the, you know, the, the authority where in Montana, we're a territory state. The state gives the authority to localities to have their range of powers. Commonwealths work the opposite way. That's like West Virginia and places like that, where the localities actually give authority to the state. Two different ways to have a state, right? So in Montana, the localities are kind of in this position where they're the number one lobby, right? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest lobby groups in you know the local legislature because they they can't tell the legislature what to do. The legislature tells them what to do, so they have to make sure that they have that you know, lobby power presence to push back. And that was, you know, on affordable housing, you know, mm-hmm. some of it, some of it was the cities and counties and other times it was, you know, they're on board with it, right? Like a uh, Montana land use planning yeah. act and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's complicated, right? But it's, it's, it's oftentimes not wanting to see their power encroached kind of becomes the the pivot point. Well, and it's this, it's, thing. it's this really careful dance that, you know, state lawmakers have to tread too, because it's really clear. Federalism is really clear, you know, set up under the constitution at the state level or federal and state level, you know, states have clear authority and the federal government has specific authorities. Um, but you know, the dynamics between local and state governments is kind of a different story. It actually become, you know, became during the legislative session, I, I'm sure you'd agree. It became almost a philosophical debate oftentimes mm-hmm. over whether the state should step in and tell local governments what to do, because oftentimes, especially for folks on the liberty side of things, um, we tend to decide more on decentralization. We like to say, let's decentralize decision making and make sure you know that we're getting it to the most local level possible. Um, but what we realize with budgets, with housing, lots of things like that, is that there's this kind of this tension because when you get to a place like Montana where you have essentially local monopolies, you have one town, you know, nothing around it. Uh, they can exert a lot of tyrannical power, mm. government power. Well, and the ultimate, the lowest level of decentralization is not the local government, it's the individual. Mm-hmm. And that's the concept of rights, right? So property rights is what we're enforcing when we loosen up and create more space for the market, right? Because the market is just the process that arrives at when you have protected property rights. Uh, where's Henri? We won't talk about the Coast Theorem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that. That's the result of it. And we talk about it as if it's the thing, right. but it's the thing that when you, when you create market forces in education or you create it in healthcare, you create it in housing, each one of those times what you're doing is you're saying, there's a right here that's being trampled on. Mm-hmm. And if we stand on that, we actually do a little bit better than when we, when we make a moral argument about the rights and make a moral argument about where the proper authority and sovereignty is, then we win. When we just say, well, it's good for the free market. No one cares. Like then we're losing. You're just trying to do something for business, right? It's a very different sort of orientation to how we sell the freedom message. Yeah. Well, and and, and honestly, I mean, from my perspective, and and there's debates that could be had on this in kind of the broader libertarian free market movement. But from my perspective, I think one of the ingenious things that the founders of this country did was, I think, strike a very great balance between kind of decentralization and centralization. Mm. And I, I think what, what it allowed is essentially the biggest free market zone, free trade zone uh, that has ever been known in the history of the world. And it led to all this flourishing that we see. And so, you know, while I look at issues of local control or issues like housing and, and budgets and the state stepping into local government's purview, 
Um, I think that the goal of the state legislature should be maximizing trade, maximizing um, you know, individual freedoms and protecting people's property rights and their individual rights. Um, that's the state's obligation. And so striking that balance between, okay, allowing local governments to do what they need to do to, you know, be semi-autonomous to, 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 you know, tailor their policies to different communities, but also we believe in freedom here mm. in America, yeah. in Montana. That's interesting. So what, so what I hear, I'm hearing you saying is that there's sometimes this predisposition to say if, as so long as the local government is instituting it, like the mm -hmm. tyranny is okay. Right. But really it's, it's okay to utilize the state mechanisms of power to override localities, petty tyranny in the interest of individual freedom. Right. Is that right. right? When it's solving a particular in the, uh, what we call the local Tabor, right. was the spending cap limitation or in affordable housing, what we're saying, or in the state, like analysis of state budgets, one of the problems in the budget process is that their definition of good is often unstated, right? So the left has a definition of good, which is more services to more people equally mm. good. The right has less budgets. How much less? What, where's the standard of good, right? So yeah. what I like about uh, what, what Frontier's done is saying, okay, this isn't the perfect standard. It's not the only standard, but here's a standard and look how far away you are from it, where you got inflation plus population growth and you see the expenses Exploding. skyrocket, right? Yeah. And then like that, that standard of what a good budget is, should the state take a role in protecting the taxpayers of that state from the misuse of a balanced budget by the local government? What does actually, well, balanced budget, so what? Who cares if it's just not going into debt per se, especially it's when higher. they could use you levies and all these things that actually, you know, are totally off the books of a balanced budget, right? right? It's like saying you have a balanced budget if you, you know, every year put $30,000 on your credit card <laughs> and that's a balanced budget. That's not a balanced budget, right? So it's like, what is the budget that we're looking for? And and the state has the authority and I think the duty to protect the taxpayer to be able to say, mm -hmm. this is a space where we're going to define what's good for you. And if you want to violate that, we'll give you some mechanism to do that, to go above in emergencies. And we'll give you, we'll consider what you need for local circumstances, but we're not going to let you yeah. just run roughshod over our people too. Yeah. Right? Well, and I'll say this. I mean, so from a, from a um, kind of victory theory standpoint, I mean, the, our job is to, um, you know, I talked about the value that we provide a lot of times is strategic vision to policymakers for us on the state level, but think tanks nationally on a national level. And um, uh, part of that value is defining what success looks like. Um, because in, in, in doing so, our hope is that we can kind of steer legislators away from defining success as just, you know, getting a short-term win mm -hmm. that gets back to the other side. You know, these mm -hmm. petty political arguments everybody right. gets in. Right. Hopefully we can, you know, define success as actually maximizing human freedom. And, and then get there. That's our goal. So we have other issues to talk about, but we're kind of running out of time on that. So I just wanted to do on um, uh, which listeners in other states take away from your experience starting the frontier and the work you've done so far to get policy wins. What can other states take away? Yeah, what, what from listeners in other states? Like these are everyday people. These are folks who are just listening in and they've never heard of the Frontier Institute. They don't really know what think tanks do. You know, they're out there looking at it. They don't know the landscape. What, what can they take away mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. your experience? Yeah, well, I, I think that there's there's a big need here for leadership. Um, and, and I think that a lot of folks in, um, especially younger folks, when you're just getting engaged with politics, um, it's such a monster. You know, there's so many different systems. There's state legislatures. There's Congress. There's campaigns. All these different things. And you feel like there's no way that you can change all this stuff. 
or even just create something on your own. Um, and so I've seen a tendency of a lot of folks who get involved with the liberty movement, try and kind of just filter into um, the system. And I would just encourage people who are concerned about what they're seeing in their communities to educate themselves, to, um, to think outside of the box and to be willing to take a risk and go out on a limb and found, found an organization that becomes, you know, something that's leading the conversation in your state. Um, you can do it. It's not anything special necessarily. There's no special sauce. It's just, I think, being willing to take a risk and not being willing or boxing yourself into thinking in terms of the existing system yeah. and say, Hey, I can create something that is going to change the system. You know? And if you're perhaps not the entrepreneurial type, but you, you are politically inclined and interested in getting involved, is there a place where people can go outside of just the state of Montana to find other think tanks like Frontier that are working on issues like you guys are working yeah. on? Well, so we're part of a few kind of networks of think tanks like ours in other states. There's think tanks uh, like us across you know the United States and lots of different states. I think most states actually. Um, and then we're also a part of a, a really cool network of global think tanks, free market think tanks. There's there's a free market think tank in Afghanistan, believe it or not. Nice. Wow. It, this is one of the coolest things. <laughs> That's awesome. And and it's it's gotta be a weird gig, man. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, well, how does the Taliban interface with them? You know, like, well literally I mean dynamic. literally I met this the CEO of that think tank uh, last year and literally I mean he's he's in exile in America and his like family had to get out like Whoa. when the Taliban took over and like if he goes back he's gonna get killed wow Oof. Well, so that answers that question yeah. <laughs> it, but it really I mean it when I talk to him it's, it puts our fight into perspective mm -hmm. you know I'm you know we're, we're we're sitting here we had the privilege of being able to come on to our podcast and complain about taxes the size of government <laughs> express our opinions and you know over there their problems are like they just want their women to be able to, to go to school and read you know right they, they, they just want basic necessities and uh, when they come up and and you go to these conferences these worldwide conferences of free market people um and they come up and they talk about what they're doing and why they care about limited governments and free markets it's put in such simple terms mm. that i think that people in the liberty movement in america don't always think in terms of mm. um where it's just ba it's basic necessities it's about human freedom it's not we don't have to get all grandiose and talk about philosophy and all that kind of stuff it's just about it's it's almost obvious to them that this is that human liberty is preferable to oppression and the Taliban ruling everything. Mm. You know? Completely. <laughs> so if you're not in Afghanistan yeah. <laughs> and you listen to this, or one listener that from yeah. the UAE, uh, maybe might be interested in this. Uh, but in other states, uh, yeah. you want to tell me a little about the state policy network? Yeah, yeah. The state policy network is the the US um, kind of network of think tanks that we're a part of. And uh, they're they're a great resource. I mean, these there's networks out there like the state policy network, like Atlas Network, that exist to help people like me start organizations build organizations from the ground up and start influencing policy and, and, you know, fighting the fight for freedom. So, um, there's resources out there for people who want to, you know, be an entrepreneur. You're not alone, you know? Mm. Um, and of course I'd be glad to help. I want others to start up organizations like mine. And, uh, you know, the other thing too, is that it's, it's not all about a think tank either. Um, you can start a media organization or podcast. I mean, that we've talked about this before, Dave, where there's uh, there's many different ways to influence society mm -hmm. and we need all of them. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's, there's lots of resources out there, grants, things like that, that you can apply for and, uh, and there's help to be provided. And honestly, it's not all about money either. A lot of people will just help you. A lot of people have helped us 
just for free because they believe in what we're doing. Hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, that's pretty special. That's but, awesome. Yeah. 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 And well, if you want to help uh, the Frontier Institute, go on there. You've got to, if you're not, if you don't have their newsletter, you're messing up. <laughs> Seriously, it's a great newsletter. They work on it really hard. They have awesome content. They do, like if you're in Montana, especially, they get these like, these like articles they write about the history of Montana and how it applies to a philosophy of freedom. They do great policy analysis. They're engaged in the session. You want to know what's going on in the session. Frontier Institute's a great uh, tool there. And then, uh, yeah, we got it up. Look at that beautiful website. It's <laughs> a really thing. nice website. Thank you. Man. Frontier Institute. So sign up for our yeah. newsletter. We send out an email newsletter every Thursday. So we won't spam you, but <laughs> it is very informative. We've gotten great feedback. And right now we're doing a policy series on rare earth element mining in Montana. Whoa. Uh, and all of the government permitting that's involved with that, that holds us up. Uh, right now, most of the rare earth elements are mined in China. Uh, <laughs> Which gives them a lot of, a lot of power over it, us, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's a fascinating story too. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next uh, part of that. Yeah. yeah. The uh, and then and then also, if you got cash, some little extra cash, please donate to the Frontier Institute. They they need your dollars. Uh, and uh, and don't forget, like, subscribe, comment on this, uh, feed that algorithm so we can get the word out about all the great stuff the Frontier Institute's doing. Frontierinstitute.org, right? Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, and awesome. if we're going to start a, a think tank, uh, shoot him a Twitter DM. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where do people Where do people find you online? Uh, you, you can definitely find me on Twitter. Uh, it's cotton MT at cotton MT and you, you can, uh, direct message me. I would be happy to chat with you. Um, anytime. Um, I want to support the, the broader Liberty movement any way I can. Awesome. Cool. Well, I don't know how you're doing on time, but, uh, I, we, Kyle, how are we doing on we time? We still got some time. I mean, we, we basically yeah. just crossed an hour. So Perfect. We got All right. more time. Should we dig into some news? Do some news. Yeah. All right. The people need news. <laughs> The people need to know what we think. They can't live without our commentary, <laughs> semi-funny comments. I, I, I've been told from some people that this is the only way they get their news. Ooh. Oh, man. That's a lot of responsibility, in Kyle. Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's like six people, and, and, and four of them are all of our moms. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Actually, I'm not even sure my mom listens to this podcast. Oh, like, man. Mom, if you listen to this podcast, why don't you go ahead and comment, drop a follow, drop a like. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, what do we got up first here? Um, Durham Report. Durham Report. David, tee us up on this. Yeah, so this is an investigation into an investigation. Of course, it's a classic federal government uh, doing a whole lot of nothing. But just to give you the background... Back in 2019, the Trump administration appointed this guy, John Durham, uh, to investigate potential misconduct by the FBI, the Alphabet Boys. We're now demonetized. God, we got to figure out a different. Uh, Russian, uh, on, on their investigation from 2016 on Russian influence in the 2016 election. Russian collusion. Yeah, That's collusion. Heard yeah. This is still the, the Trump uh, investigation. Right. Yeah, the Durham oh. report is on the Obama investigation oh. into that was started during Obama and then went into the Trump agency. Oh my gosh. And into whether or not the Trump administration was collaborating with the Kremlin. Wow. Yeah. And, um, basically this report is on the report. So how it's, it's asking the question, how good a job did they do following their own rules, Hmm. their own standards of those rules and how bipartisan was it? Like, or how nonpartisan was it? What did this, did that, was this what Republicans accused it of being, which is a witch hunt, in order to undermine the authenticity and the legitimacy of a US, sitting U.S. president because he was so controversial and people didn't like him, right? So the Durham report is a critique of the FBI's investigation. Yes. Got it. Who, who, is it named after somebody? 
uh, John Durham, the, the special investigator who was appointed to do the investigation in the FBI. Mm. Yeah. So the, uh, and also important to that, the first investigation into Russian collusion wound up with 12 different criminal cases. One ended up with a guilty plea and then two were thrown out of court and then the others didn't go anywhere. So there was things that happened, but how substantial those things are was not substantial at all. And of so, course, Trump himself and high members of the campaign were not touched at all. Gotcha. Right. So those 12 um, charges you said were, were all levied against the Trump administration yes. in some form or another. Yeah. Well, against the Trump campaign, technically. Campaign. Yeah. Hmm. In elections, you always have the, it's, 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 a, it's a strange system that we have, right? You have the official side and you have the campaign side and there's a firewall in between. Even though a lot of the same people cross back and forth, there's, um, there's a supposed both financial and otherwise firewall between. So this is all against the campaign, not in the sense of Trump administration. Although, of course, if you find him guilty, uh, you could get impeachment and stuff like that. And that's um, according to, you know, some of the investigators from the 2016 investigation, that that was kind of the goal, right? Is to create dirt, yeah. right? So the, um, the, the FBI did not have enough intelligence to warrant the investigation by the FBI on the Trump campaign. They did not have, they had sufficient intelligence. That's the first criticism. Second was that the FBI failed to uphold strict fidelity of the law, right? So they were following the spirit of the law, not what the law actually says per se is kind of what the accusation is. Mm. That's kind of legalese talk, right? It's like they, they, they bent the law. They, <laughs> maybe they didn't really violate it, but it was close. They, they fell prone to quote confirmation bias, repeatedly ignoring and rationalizing way evidence that, that was against their, narrative that they were building mm. that Trump was indeed a Russian agent. And lastly, they failed analytical rigor of information, uh, you know, like not confirming, for example, that a highly politicized and, um, bad incentive actor was giving them information. In this case, the steel dossier, right? They got the steel dossier and they're like, well, this seems legit rather than confirming things. That's all you would do. If you're an investigator, if you're, if you have someone accusing someone of a crime, you don't just say like, Oh, I believe that person. They seem like a nice guy. You go and you confirm alibis and you confirm, you know, the, the evidence of that thing. So, um, kind of just like off the surface saying, Oh, the Hunter Biden laptop is probably Russian disinformation. Ignore it. Yes. Yes. That's actually a good example. Yeah. That that is a great example. Yeah. So like that, that's why is so much of this is tied into, okay, what, what is the just role of intelligence agencies when it comes to this sort of question, especially with the insider outsider dynamic that happens with Trump, but other people too, right? I mean, like, it's not just them. RFK Jr. could be in this category as well. There could be other Bernie Sanders could be in this category as well, right? If he gotten closer to, you know, knocking out Hillary Clinton, maybe that could have, maybe if intelligence agencies got involved there, that would be disastrous for our democracy and our faith in institutions well, did it, as well. I mean, didn't they? Didn't we have the WikiLeaks? The, the um, what was that? The Hillary Gucifer? campaign. The Gucifer that, 2.0? That, that was the 2016 um, election, right? Yeah. yeah. That referencing? But that, yeah, yeah. that was the DNC leaks. Yeah, that was the DNC collaborating with media, not the DNC collaborating with the FBI. Mm-hmm. Right. But I guess what I was what I was oh. saying there is that there's it seems to me that like there's there on both sides there is um, kind of alliances with elements or adjacent elements to a lot of these intelligence services uh, for both sides like tr- the Trump camp Hillary camp and they're both like running these tracks of trying to to kind of dig up dirt and yeah. you know you saw the WikiLeaks stuff but then you also saw this stuff mm-hmm. and it's so interesting to me. 
Because it's like both sides playing against each other. Yeah, trying right. to weaponize the intelligence state against yeah. their political opponent. Yeah, which well, is like and, you, and you have to antithetical to a republic. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but uh, we, we, the WikiLeaks was a private organization that got emails from somebody at the DNC, right? They're, they're, they're just hosting a website that hosts leak information. They're didn't, not necessarily didn't come from the FBI. Yeah, yeah, that was there was no intel. I'm mean, not I'm aware of it. That's that would be a surprise. To no, me but I thought Roger there. Stone was involved with that, right? Yeah, but he was in power at the time. But he was like working with Trump, though. Yes. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, was he involved directly or did he just talk about it? I mean, he like was talking to him. Oh, okay. I, I think, about know. the WikiLeaks panel? Yeah, well, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. I mean, like a lot of the Hillary Clinton email scam, if you guys remember that stuff, that seems so right. pithy now, right? Like she stored the emails, emails on the wrong <laughs> server. Like we lock her up for it. Seems really crazy yeah. looking back on it now. But I mean, even then, like that was a revelation because of those mm -hmm. leaks from a private actor at the DNC sending them who you know who knows who that was we don't ever, we don't find out so coming back to the durham report yeah we've basically got uh john durham this investigator saying the fbi acted completely wrongly in their right. investigation that they, they, they didn't have sufficient evidence they bent the law they they did all these things that that was not appropriate to to substantiate like the need for this investigation at all it, it should it should never have gone as far as it did is that kind of what it's saying that's exactly what it's saying and, and wow. it, even cnn was saying this is a damning report it, it was covered by all the major news organizations right because this has been a story forever now and it's a major indictment on the range of current regulatory authority that the fbi has to involve themselves especially when you combine them with the twitter files and the Joe Biden laptop in okay. election interference. Yeah. Or sorry, Hunter Biden, not Joe Biden. He's the big man on that He's laptop. The big man. I think. <laughs> well, that's what the emails say. Like we did this yeah. for the big man. Kyle, I interrupted you earlier, bro. I'm sorry. Do I don't, I don't, I don't remember what we were saying. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I had to go fix uh, Kendall's camera cause it was out of focus. Oh, jeez. So, um, no, no, never, never go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, so an interesting thing here that I, that I just, uh, I want to get out there because I had an interesting, I have an interesting anecdote to share from Ireland, or actually mm. I was in Scotland at the time. What, what, what I think this is just the latest example of really to preface is this phenomenon that like Trump has been in the news literally since, like since he was president the whole time, there's been some kind of scandal, some kind of investigation, and it's just been a train of, of all of this stuff. And, you know, if there is evidence there to suggest that there should be one, that's one thing. But it's, it's really created a pretty incredible pattern of investigations against him and he gets off scot-free. Mm -hmm. And I think there, there are two camps of people in the, in the world. I mean, obviously more than that, but on this particular issue, there are people that are like, this indicates, this seems to establish the precedent that he is innocent. And there are other people that just think he's Teflon Don, he's guilty of all of it, but somehow he gets away with it. And I found it interesting um, when I was standing in a pub, you know, after having dinner uh, in Scotland, talking with some local folks from this island that we were on, they they were aware of all this, and and they're people I think internationally are much more broadly aware of our politics than we probably are of all the other international political things that go on, right? I mean, we try to stay in, in, informed, but our political sphere is is incredibly influential internationally, and and there was there was broad awareness of the fact that the media and the 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 political apparatus the system the deep state whatever you want to call it was has been out to get trump and how ridiculous mm. really this now looks for them especially i mean in this the Durham report hadn't even dropped yet 
when we were having this conversation, but there, there was a, a broad sense amongst the group I was talking with that, yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious that the media just hates him and just want, wants to make him look as bad as possible. Hmm. So I just thought that was an interesting, th- this is an interesting additional data point hmm. to that, to that story. Yeah. And something to add along to that too is, um, just remember the scale of how much we had to deal with this for like two or three years where it was like Putin literally installed Donald Trump <laughs> and we had CNN and MSNBC saying that, that this intrusion on our democracy is literally an act of war, right? <laughs> like just remember the scale of how much we're dealing with this. And, and now when we're looking at the Durham report, it's basically like, eh, it's, it was all, it was all basically a big nothing burger and now we just move on. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's interesting that it, the, the, the interference turned out to be $28,000, something like that of ads spent by Russian bots on oh, right. both sides of the political spectrum, hitting different candidates. Yeah. Like Hillary Clinton ran a billion dollar campaign, <laughs> right? Oh, right? If she lost incredible. out to 20 something thousand dollars in ad spending, you're doing it right. Hire them. <laughs> That's that efficient the, ad spend. That is the most effective <laughs> ad spend ever created. Have you ever seen the graphics? It's like a Jesus and Satan arm wrestling and be like, you know who to vote for. You're like, well, I don't know. Who do, who do you want me to vote for? I don't know. Whether like it wasn't even the graphics that I saw that were accused of being Russian uh, purchase ads were um, hilariously bad in my experience as a campaigner. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, so uh, where do we go from here with this? I mean, yeah. like. Well, I was just, what happens now? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I don't know what happens now, yeah. but I guess I, what I, one of the things I was going to say is like from a cultural perspective, I really feel like this is all kind of a symptom of like this country's lurch into illiberalism. You know, mm. it's this idea that like it's it's kangaroo courts, it's uh, the media and kind of public, you know, social media, especially now determining guilt. Um, and it's not uh, us all embracing this idea that we need to investigate we need to figure out whether somebody's innocent or not, whether an accusation is right or not. Uh, and we're not doing that. And both sides aren't, from my perspective. Yeah, yeah the prosecution by public assassination mm-hmm. through yeah. social media mm-hmm. right, is, is a bigger variable than the actual determinant of justice. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good criticism, right? There's on both sides. I think it's a good both sidesism moment, right? Because we do do that on the right. And there is a... Um, there's a quickness like to where people just be like, Oh, it's very convenient for me not to think this person's the devil. So therefore I'm going to use this opportunity. Right. Uh, and that's just, that's like a human vice. Like we've always had that too, but, and I want to make clear too, for listeners, when Kendall says illiberal, what he means is the classical liberal tradition of the institutions that we currently have. Right. So our government was designed in 1780 during a liberal era, the old liberal era that said free markets, individual rights, laissez-faire economics, and then we say free markets and property rights and justice through a discovery process of adversarial discovery, right? That we shouldn't trust people's passions. What we need is a dispassionate process to adjudicate truth. And that's what the justice system was originally made to be. But we have all these variables that go different directions. We have social media kind of disrupting that and kind of giving everyone a, you know, tainting the well, right? But then we also have you know, the DAs that don't enforce the laws in their cities, right? People are having less trust in the justice system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump being, having the lawsuit that get brought about him seems so pithy and ridiculous. Like he miscategorized a supposed meeting with a prostitute. <laughs> I guess that's right. But I am, I, am I remembering that right? Like that's the thing that they're going to get him on federal charges for that, that, that 
that's something that we all own to the degree that the prosecutor in New York is using this as a political stand-up thing. Like he, we're, the faith in that system can be cracked by that, but it's also right. cracked by the average person just participating in the flame war. Yeah, well, and it used to be, I mean, like I think kind of when the country was founded, like the idea behind creating all of these institutions and systems to deliver justice was that the public will be the place where chaos is. You know, the public will be the place where there are, you know, just uh, public anger and outrage and public indictments, things like that. And that the system would be able to filter all of that and find the truth. And we need to protect that system at all costs. But I think that w where we are now is that now the system has become infected. Mm. The, the system is corrupt from the inside out. And so that's where we're seeing some of these intelligence agencies now embracing that illiberalism, you know, and they're going after their own political enemies. And, uh, and I think that's, that's at the root of the problem. Right. And, 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 you know, it's, it's funny cause it's both that and it's always been that way. Mm, right. I right. mean, if you look at the FBI's actions with Martin Luther Curry Jr. Denying him the right to conceal carry, mm -hmm. spying on him, sending him notes to try to get him to kill himself, uh, taking recordings of him and his mistresses, you know, <laughs> like there's, that was the federal Bureau of investigations doing on a person who was just saying a civil rights leader, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we had the church commission, church commission did do some reforms, but not nearly enough. So what's next? We need intelligence reform in this country. Every agency, executive agency needs to be re looked at, reassessed. At least one of the things that I think is one of the major drivers of the core problem is over, uh, censorship that's not quite the right word hmm. where you block out words that you don't want uh, redaction redaction over redaction uh constraining this just to intelligence committees so the average congressman doesn't actually know what these agencies are up to or has any amount of authority to check them in fact almost all of their mechanisms for checking are all public and therefore they can't do it because it's top secret right so you you literally pinched congress out of regulating the executive which is their role their role is to set what the executive does. It's not the executive should just act and we have two different branches of government that are co-equal in that sense. No, no, no. That's not what a republic is. A republic is the legislative branch says, this is what you're allowed to do, president. Right. But we've totally lost that when it comes to these agencies. So yeah, um, Vivek Wamaswamy, I'm, he's, he's earning my support day by day, man. He came out and he said, pardon Julian Assange. He's looking at pardoning Snowden, looking at Ross Albrecht. And he wants to abolish the FBI and create and, and, a new yeah, and eradicate like ninety percent of the Fed and like, yeah. like all these different yeah, things. Yeah, he's right? he's turning yeah, only ninety percent. <laughs> <laughs> give him give him a chance. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it was an interesting one because he's like, uh, why do we have so many employees at the Fed? They have one job. Well, it's like five figures worth of employees right like it's, wow. it's an insane amount of employees there. Yeah. so i think i think this uh the twitter files is a huge indictment on that um and i and i, I you had an interesting take on technology and technology reform like how do we handle the large you know social media companies censoring people like what's the free market solution to that other than just reforming the fbi or the cia stuff like that yeah um well i think that innovation is the solution i i, I think that we can create better systems that um uh, are, 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 Kyle will like this. They're trustless 
Yeah. That, <laughs> uh, but but that but that uh, can overcome um, a lot of our reliance on these corrupt systems. Wait, what do you mean by trustless? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So so it's embracing this idea of decentralization. I think is fundamentally so this idea well, that it's cutting out third party and intermediaries yeah. that kind of get in the way. Like this is the whole point of the whole crypto uh, space is like you become your own bank, you're cutting out banks out of the system and you can just have peer to peer transactions. Right. Right. Like this would be the same thing on the social media entities. The, the less friction that exists, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in like a peer to peer way on social media, the less people can kind of get involved. Like this is also the point of like encrypted messaging and stuff like that. Exactly. Like you can't have people come in and just like, Nope, can't take that. That's right. right. Well, and I think that, you know, something, I think the, the Twitter files has really crystallized this for a lot of people is that you, not only do we now have, of like the social media platform uh, filtering are what we can say, not say. Uh, and then maybe, you know, like the internet service provider being willing to, you know, provide service to that website. Uh, but now we have the government agency stepping in and wanting their piece of the action. And we have all these middlemen now in between people communicating with each other. And I think that the idea of innovation is uh, a freeing us from a reliance on that system and reliance on other people to communicate. And so, yeah, our message, I think you you, you alluded to this was uh, earlier this year, was that the solution to uh, social media censorship is not big government, right? Like the the solution to big tech is not big government, right? Right. Uh, Because that's just continuing to have a third party in between people communicating, right? The, uh, The real solution is not big tech, it's decentralized tech. We need to get to a place where innovation allows us just to talk to each other. Yeah. And, and we don't have to have that third party. Right. And that's, and that's done using new technologies, mm-hmm. including the blockchain chain space, but not necessarily that allow people to do that without a centralizing figure. Um, and th- I like that because it is, it is true that what we need is intelligence reform, right? And well, that's a good aim. But if you're someone who can build the next great thing, maybe that's the thing that you should focus on. Maybe that's a comparative advantage, right? Cause if, there is a current need in the marketplace for a non-censored, censor-proof social media platform that people really use and works well. Maybe that's the next step someone can get wealthy with. Yeah, well, I, I think that's right. And I think uh, this is another place where Kyle and I have talked uh, for a long time about the, uh, the sovereign individual thesis, the, the book, The Sovereign Individual. And, and it's this idea that you know, technology, hopefully, will, ena- will enable over time, over the next you know, 50 years, uh, individuals to free themselves from reliance on these old corrupt systems and uh, empower them to uh, be sovereign, be truly sovereign, and to be able to chart their own destiny. And uh, so, you know, in a sense, I almost view uh, how whatever steps we can take technologically through innovation to get us faster to that point of, of, of us all as individuals being sovereign um, as almost more important than reforming the old broken system. We need to create new systems. We need to allow people to opt out of that system we need to allow people to exit and we need to build that way forward. Hmm. Uh, adding on to that as well, uh, something that was kind of said earlier is that the FBI, like it's it's not necessarily that the FBI is just like now all of a sudden corrupt. They've all, they've been doing this for so long. And Dave, you referenced uh, um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and whatnot. Um, it is kind of like through the sovereign individual thesis right now, we have the internet is breaking down the noble lies of the past and now everybody can kind of see the corruption. And Mm -hmm. that is really the sovereign individual thesis is that they can no longer control the propaganda in the way that they used to be able to. They're they're no longer able to kind of like run cover for these agencies and kind of all the Mm -hmm. corrupt practices that they're doing. And now we as people are just able to see. It's sort of like the Gutenberg press with 
the Bible was then proliferated to everybody else after Martin Luther, like the internet is kind of the same yeah. facet, right? Well, I sent Kyle a book recommendation the other day. I don't know if you guys have read The Revolt of the Public by Martin mm-hmm. Geary. Highly recommend. That is a great book. And it speaks to a little bit of what Kyle was just talking about, where, uh, you know, Martin's thesis is that uh, there's there's periods over time where the elites and the public are farther apart and closer together. So uh, back when the, you know, the print press was invented and, and, you know, there's proliferation of knowledge through books, through book printing, it brought the public a lot closer to the people Mm. and it led to these things like the Protestant revolution. Mm. or uh, reformation, things like that. And what we're seeing right now is a similar thing happening with social media where, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you weren't able to tweet at your president, right? And have him retweet you, right? you know, and, and which he's done, you know, that happens. And yeah. um, now the public is so close to their elites. And what it's, what it's done is it's lifted the veil. Mm. And I think that's, that's underlying a lot of the kind of um, people being upset nowadays. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, not only are we seeing the corruption, but we're seeing that, that maybe, you know, the, the faith that we've put in these people in terms of their intelligence <laughs> is maybe misplaced as well in some certain instances. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's very true. Uh, Donald Trump has yet to retweet me though. So I'm, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe here <laughs> when he soon. gets back on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. If, if he comes he back, does. right. He, he may not. Right. He's got truth social. <laughs> is anybody on truth social? No, no. <laughs> I, I, I tried parlor briefly when I got banned from everything, and I was like, "No, I, I can't do this." Yeah, I, can't yeah. <laughs> Not I enjoy TikTok. I'll tell you guys. I know there's a lot of hate for TikTok, but I enjoy it. What's going to happen with the TikTok ban? Is that what's going to happen with that? Is that a thing? I think it'll probably get passed and signed. I, yeah. I don't think it's signed yet, right? I think it's been signed. The state, I, I can't remember. Level I can't remember where we're at. Yeah, it's a state level state one. State level one. Uh, oh, it oh, not will, to restrict act. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, it will get a, a lawsuit. It probably violates Federal Trade Commission rules i mean it's probably gonna it's gonna be in lawsuit so it's probably gonna get suspended it'll happen for maybe a week and then mm-hmm. a judge will suspend it or so something don't like panic if you're out there you love tiktok <laughs> and like and follow and subscribe us on tiktok <laughs> yes i'm gonna yes. get better at this whole pitching you know people to do stuff you're killing it yeah so the debt ceiling Cue the Willy Wonka meme <laughs> okay <laughs> so we are two weeks away from defaulting on our debt. Government spending has been allocated from spending bills with our omnibus bills from the last few years. They usually they say, we're going to spend this much more this year. They don't really do budgets anymore. They do have what's called continuing resolutions. So that's a whole other story that we covered months and months ago. But now they have what's called the debt ceiling. It's pretty much saying you have a credit card limit, right? As a country, and you want to expand that credit card limit. You want to take out some more credit cards. So you go to the bank, you say, hey, I'm taking more credit cards. Well, the government is its own bank, right? They prints the money, right? So it's, it's saying, here's how much more we're going to do it. Now, what the trick is, is like the psychological play of what it means to go into debt, right? So the debt ceiling is just the debate around how much more debt should we take on as a country and how do we reform or continue on the current path to that debt problem. And you really have two sides. You have Republicans say we need to cut spending. You have Democrats say we need to raise taxes. It's like, it's such a stereotype. So <laughs> it's like, it's so ridiculous that we're still here when we're sitting at $32 trillion of debt. Yeah. That we are going to hit here soon. I saw a, a, uh, a cartoon today with, um, there was a donkey representing the Democrats and there was an elephant representing the Republicans and the elephant was strapped to the world economy. 
and with a with a uh, jacket full of explosives <laughs> and and uh he was just saying we have to address the debt limit you know but i guess the whole point of the cartoon was at what cost right. um and so from democrats perspective um they're they're like we just have to raise the debt ceiling no matter what and i, I think what republicans are staying saying right now is that we have we they're going to make a stand for reducing the growth of spending. I want to emphasize that too, because it's not cuts. When people say cuts, they're not reducing spending. They're reducing the growth of spending. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's going up at a slower pace. Right, yeah. right. right. It, it's actually flattening out. That's what they want to do is they're just going to say, We're, our spending is going to be 2022 spending. And that's considered a cut mm-hmm. because it's not growing. Yeah. Now, play on words. the irony is why it's not considered, why it's considered a cut is because of inflation. Where does inflation come from? Spending the government and, and partially <laughs> deficit spending, but more so more. I mean, if I were to, it's, it's impossible to know, but if I were thinking about it, inflation probably happens mostly through federal policy first, fiscal policy second, and then a whole lot of other fundamentals, like including environmental shocks, you know, uh, a, supply chain. Yeah. yeah a, a train full of cows derails and a bunch of cows die. So the price of beef goes up. Like that's also price inflation, right? But, yeah, but, but what we really mean, yeah. yeah, what we yeah. really mean is the general price inflation. What we really mean is that expansion of the money supply and no one does that like the fed, the federal government, and then the bank banks on behalf of the fed mm-hmm. as a, as a collateral consequence of mm-hmm. policy. So what is the debt, right? That's the question. What are we talking about when we say the more debt? Debt comes from people saying, here's a treasury bond. And a treasury bond is just a promise that I will pay you interest every six months on this, on this bond. And then at the end of 20 years, I'll pay you the rest of the money back. It's a loan, right? So the federal government's taking a loan out from people, individuals, foreign nationals, anybody who wants it can pretty much buy it with the exception of some rules in some countries, right? And they take that bond and they, they're supposed to get paid back. Well, when we hit the debt ceiling, right? That is interest payments stop. That's saying you expect me to pay you this interest and pay you this back, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I've hit my I cap. I, I I, we're literally taking out loans so we can pay our interest on our loans. <laughs> and that factors into that right. they, when they talk about credit, the credit worthiness of basically the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. yeah, they're saying that this will undermine the confidence in that because you'll have holders who currently are used to this income and they're going to be like, well, I'm not going to buy any more treasury bonds because you're not paying me anymore. And they're like, well, right. we need to keep the debt ball rolling because we can't afford to even pay the current interest on the current debt. I mean, we watched it a couple months ago where we brought up usdebtclock.org and watched the interest payments and how enormously, I can't remember off the top of my head, well, I what think- are the interest rate payments right now just on the federal government? What was the current federal Interest rate payment. I'll have to pull it up on here. the national debt because that's saw, that's what we're talking about. I saw something that said that the the interest payment on the debt has recently eclipsed the amount that we spend on the military every year. Mm. That doesn't seem right, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, I could be misquoting <laughs> yeah. it, but well, let's let's talk about some of the cuts while Kyle's looking it up. Uh, sure. Four hundred billion dollars is that's the interest as payment. of as of May seventeenth. Is yeah, the interest rate payment that would be up there with the military? That would be up there. Yeah, I'm almost half trillion. <laughs> so, uh, and why is this going up so fast? Because we're now having to raise interest rate to fight interest rates to fight inflation, right? So now it's making that cost go bigger. And this is the trap. This is the trap we've been talking about for 20 years now saying this is a problem because the federal government can't, is going to blow up inflation. And then we're also going to have all this debt. So how do we get out of this in the past when we had far less national debt, you can increase interest rate payments and the federal government could take it on the nose, but can they take it on the nose now? I want to emphasize that. Yeah. What you just said is super key. The increase in interest rates doesn't just affect your mortgage or your car payment or your Mm -hmm. credit card payment. 
it affects the government's rate that they pay on the debt that we have as a country. That is a huge problem. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's why politicians problem. love inflation. Right. Because it makes the uh, the interest, well, it makes the payments easier to make, right? You can exactly. print the money to pay the, pay the debt. Keep the party going. But you can't avoid the hangover forever. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're finding ourselves right now is that the, the hour is getting late and we're running out of drugs mm-hmm. is really what's happening. Uh, just to add a little context to 400 billion is a lot of, a lot of money. It's hard to conceptualize that. What that is, is it's about 8% of all federal revenue collections, like quite, quite, quite sizable so taxes and, and, and roughly fees. about $3,055 per household. Mm. So that's what we're kind of talking about. Here. And that's not the debt. That's the payment on the debt. So when you have your credit card and you got $30,000 in, in credit card debt, that's just the payment to keep on top of the debt you have. That's not paying down the debt. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's just, it's just paying the interest rate on that debt. That's the problem with the current system where we're not currently doing that. So what would this, what, so the Republicans are saying in order to raise this debt ceiling, we're going to, we're going to run straight into it. You know why? Because if you want us to raise the debt ceiling, Democrats in the Senate and President Biden, you have to do a spending cut <laughs> uh, to do that. So they're asking for saving $150 billion, cutting back the IRS spending because uh, the IRS got this whole new package of IRS agents that are going after. New uh, package. It was 80,000, wasn't it? Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. 80,000 yeah. new agents. 80,000 new agents. It's going to cut that back. It's going to say, mm-hmm. we're not going to spend that much money on the IRS. And it's going to say, you know, well, and of course the IRS agents, what are they doing? They're going after billionaires. No, not no, exactly. They're going after OnlyFans <laughs> girls and your uh, your uh, cash app accounts. Not OnlyFans girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are entrepreneurs too. That's all right. right. Yeah, like, market, yeah. I, so I, about this debt limit, I, I, you know, there's a lot of people who are passionate about, you know, I mean, we talk about uh, the threat of nuclear war. People get really passionate about that. And that is like one of the biggest challenges of our time. Like if people aren't concerned about that, they should be. The national debt's right up there for me. Mm. Like if if a politician's running for president next year and they don't talk about the national debt seriously and have a plan to address it seriously, then I I don't, I don't take them seriously. Mm. Uh, I I think that that is, I mean, this is, this is reaching crisis levels. It already has for a long time and we should be treating it as a nation on the same level as nuclear extinction. I mean, the, the, the national debt getting away from us is our country's extinction. Right. Well, and anyone who's not really facing it accurately is, or facing it directly and mm-hmm. really with a plan, mm-hmm. right, is is really in a position of leadership is complicit in the in the fall of of the United States, the empire, right? I mean, they're they're facilitating it by not fixing this because it, it is it's more of a certainty at this point, I would say, than the the possibility of World War Three or you know some sort of mutually assured destruction via nuclear armaments. Like this is we're on that path. Like it, it's, it's going to happen yeah. if we don't do it. Social security is going to run out. We're like in the Medicare river and we're headed down out. the waterfall. It's right there. And, well, and we know it far more, far more mathematical certainty than we know that climate change is going to destroy the world. Right. I mean, definitely if people are going to be worried about something, nuclear change, I agree. Nuclear war is way more scary than climate change, but way more people are worried about climate change than they are about nuclear exchange. Yeah. And then this is completely gone under the, and the, the reason why is because the, we're constantly with that 30 second memory hole we constantly can't break outside of that. So even this plan, which, you know, does stuff I think is good. Like we're going to level off spending. Fine. I'll do that better than just increasing spending by $150 billion annually, you know, and, and taking back with all these COVID release funds that never got spent. So they're like the big controversies, they're going to not spend it. Claw so, back. Right. Claw back. Yeah. Uh, the cutting the student loan forgiveness program from, from Biden. 
uh, putting work requirements on Medicaid, SNAP, stuff like that, uh, which is, of course, that's going to be the target of it. But then to turn it around, right, because the Democrats look like they're being ridiculous with all these and criticizing these, the Republicans are not cutting a dime from the Defense Department. Mm. Right. So this is a typical, you know, like non-serious play as well, I think, in the sense that the military budget's a huge part of the budget, too. If you're really serious about getting lefties on board, why not just, you know, pause their thing and cut their spending, too, and just say, hey, guys, you got to make do with the same amount last year that you did this year. I'm going to take it on the nose for the country. If you can't, if you say there's no way to become more efficient in our military spending... I, I want to introduce you to a guy I know, Adam Thune, who can tell you some stories, right? Like <laughs> there's any military figure that I've ever met can say, yes, it's full of waste, fraud, and abuse. We could do better. So, I mean, they say the, the, the John Stewart interview where they're talking about yeah. failing every single defense audit for 10 years now or whatever. Oh, yeah. How many trillions of dollars have gone missing? From yeah. I mean, come come on. A couple decades. Republicans, like, come on. Like if you can't, if you, if you can't get serious after failing that many audits about just holding their lovely flat until they can succeed in audit. That seems reasonable to yeah. me. I mean, the issue for me on all of this is it, it's, it really is the epitome of that saying of, you know, you're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic, right? It's like, these are great. They're, they're steps in the right direction, but they're so meaningless compared to the scale of the problem we're facing. It's yeah. completely and utterly marginal. Mm. And, 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 and the sad part is the people that are, that are lobbying these foot political footballs back and forth, Republicans and Democrats, they're all well off enough that no matter what happens down the road, when terms of, you know, a default, they're going to be fine. They've got their money tucked away here and there. They've got their investments. The people that are going to pay the price for this are average Americans. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're all going to get slapped like hell with this. I mean, the economy is going to, is, is going to go to shit worse for those of us that don't have those nest eggs that don't have those resources. Mm-hmm. The, those that are least fortunate are going to be hurt the worst. Right. And that's but, the saddest part. And, and the sad thing too, is it's going to happen and it has happened gradually. Right. Yeah. It's like the, what's the, the idea Gr- with that? Gradually then suddenly. Exactly. Yeah. It's the, it's the frog in the boiling water, boiling water. I mm-hmm. mean, he doesn't realize it. So yeah. it's, it, that's what, you know, the regular folks in America are going to experience. And, you know, some element of this too is due to our prosperity. I mean, over the, because of our free economy, people in this country are so prosperous that, uh, when the government is dealing with that level of a crisis, a lot of people still don't feel the effects. They go about their daily lives. They're able to go to, you know, they're able to get DoorDash, you know, they're able to go to their jobs and be on their social media and it's going to take a big crisis for people to wake up. Well, I also think I'm it's like, scared of. it's an education problem fundamentally. Like yeah. the average person, you ask them what, what, what causes inflation? They say, well, I don't know, corporate greed. Yeah. Right. And it's like blaming corporate greed for inflation is like blaming gravity for airplane crashes. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Cause like that, it kind of defies how an economy works and flips the logic on its head. So when you see a question of what, what, why don't are more people connecting it? Well, it's because the media is in there saying that there's like, if you're a Republican, you believe this is federal spending, not the federal reserve. If you're a Democrat, this is corporate greed, mm. right? As if corporate greed just suddenly went up in the last year and it was not greedy. People two are years more ago. greedy now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the challenge is, is how to get the average person to say, Oh my God, the price of chicken is now this, it was this two seconds ago the goddamn federal reserve, right? The, you know, what are they doing over there? Right. That closing that gap of information is the goal. And that's, that's the opportunity we have now that our, our parents didn't have, right. If you, even if you knew what the federal reserve was in the 1990s, how do you tell anybody? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. With they're the sure internet. Not, they're sure not going to let you on the news to talk about it. Right. The, the, right. the state controlled, well, the controlled media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the, uh, so our opportunity with the internet and with new media technology, like the Liberty Portal podcast, um, you know, that's the, that's the goal is to get the word out so that everyday people can connect the news to the causes of the news better yeah. uh, and using a, uh, the lens of a philosophy of life, of liberty uh, to do so. That's, that's what we're here for. So let's go try it. Let's do it. And I mean, it really ties back to the, the education piece. I mean, because we can, we can do so much in the media, but really like there is no real economic education going on in public schools. Like, mm. did you two experience any? I sure didn't. <laughs> you know, I definitely, not I, in I high school. Yeah. I mean, no, nowhere. Sir. Like I remember there being sort of like an entrepreneurship class that you could do, but you had to specifically seek it out. There yeah. was nothing within just the normal course regimen, the curriculum to teach anybody about debt, how debt mm -hmm. works or how compounding interest works or, you know, about, I mean, you, you have, you know, your, maybe your U S government class, but that's usually mostly confined to like the humanities and like, you know, sort of a, uh, a left leaning lens on, on history, on American history. Yeah. There's very, very little, if anything about economic literacy in, right. in public education. Well, I think it's uh one of the things I've noticed too, is that education, you know, uh, is so focused on memorization and not on, you know, application and thinking critically about how you use concepts in the real world. And uh, I, that was one of the reasons why myself, like I, I loved English class because I was able to read a book and then synthesize its important points from my own, you know, my own perspective and then put them into like a, an essay and, and, you know, structure it in a certain way. And I think in a lot of other areas like math and science, uh, the way public educate government education has gone is it's just, you know, memorize these times tables, memorize how to do stuff and not, um, how do I use this to build a business? How do I use this to, uh, think about my orientation to politics in the broader macro world? And I think we need to get back to that. And I, I don't think it's going to happen within a monopoly government school system. Well, it's definitely not. And especially, you know, for those of us that are beyond school age, I mean, you know, you're on your own at this point, you got to just kind of, you got to use YouTube university to a certain degree or, you know, whatever other sites that are out there that you, know, you can learn from. And there are a lot of good ones, you know, um, Mises.org, for example, and fee is, is a great one. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's some really great resources for folks. I passed two semesters of college at MSU here, uh, without buying the books and by binge watching YouTube videos before my tests. Yeah. Are same, same. I, I bought like two books in college. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. You guys were, were killing it. I was like, and they're like, Oh my God carry all these freaking books. <laughs> I, I bought the ones that were like required because the homework was in them. Uh, like the workbook. Yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah. Like uh, that type of stuff. All right, Kyle, do we want to go to some human reaction since uh, uh, we're running we are, short on time? We are running pretty far. I don't know how much time we have. Like we, I only I, have about another 15. Okay. Okay. Uh, we got to do, we do, we got to do this Musk one. Cause we got we to we have this discussion on tolerance. We got to do it. It's oh. too good. All right. So yeah, here is uh, Elon Musk yesterday. Um, I had listened to the entire interview live. It's very much worth it. Um, he goes into a talking about AI and uh, Tesla's future and stuff, but there was an interesting clip that I think, uh, um, I don't know, I think that a lot of people will like to hear. So here we go. Let's talk a bit about your tweets um, because it comes up a lot. Um, even today it came up in you know, anticipation of this. I mean, um, you know, you do some tweets that seem to be, or at least give support to some who would call others conspiracy theories. Well, yes, but I mean, honestly, you know, we, we, some of these conspiracy theories, uh, 
have turned out to be true. Which ones? Well, like the the Hunter Biden laptop. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was a pretty big deal. There was Twitter and 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 others engaged in active suppression of information that was relevant to the public. Um, that's that's a that's a terrible thing that happened. That's election but, interference. But how do you make a choice? You don't see. I mean, in terms there, of quick. when you're going to engage. Yeah. I mean, election interference. That's very interesting to hear him say that, right? Because it's such a. It, there's a big difference between well, they messed up. Well, we're sorry. We're sorry that we that we did that. And no, that's an accusation that the FBI was interfering in the election cycle for a partisan gain. Yeah. And notice that he just completely ignores <laughs> that whole answer. She's like, but, but, but your tweets, but your, but your mean tweets. Yeah, tell me more about your tweets. <laughs> for example, even today, Elon, you, you, you tweeted this thing about George Soros. Well, I'm looking for it because I want to make sure I quote it properly. But I mean, you know what you wrote, but. You basically, I it reminds me of Magneto. It's just like, you know, calm down, people. This is not like metaphor. I can put a well, case out of it. You, also, <laughs> you said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like, when you do something like that, do you Yeah, think I think about, that's true. That's my opinion. Okay. But why share it? Why share it? Especially because, I mean, <laughs> why share it when people who buy Teslas may not agree with you? Advertisers on Twitter may not agree with you. Um... Why not just say, hey, I think this. You can tell me. We can talk about it over there. You can tell your friends. But why share it widely? I mean, uh, I, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say what I you want You absolutely are. But I'm trying to understand why you do, because you have to know it's got a... There, it, it puts you in, a, in the middle of a, the partisan divide in the country. It makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism. I mean, do you like that? I you know, people today saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think you are. No, I'm definitely, I'm, okay. I'm like, I'm like a pro-Semite, if anything. <laughs> I, I believe that probably is the case. Yes. But why would you even introduce the idea then that that would be the, the case? I, I mean, let's, we don't want to make this a, a George Soros interview. No, um, God, no. I, so, don't, I don't want to uh, at all. But I'm, what I'm trying, even came up though in the annual meeting. I mean, you know, do your tweets hurt the company are there tesla owners who say i don't agree with his political position because and i know it because he shares so much of it or are there advertisers on twitter that lindy are not even letting him say, speak he's you just gotta like stop man or, you know i can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet i love the silence you know i'm reminded of uh, the, the, the scene in the Princess Bride, great movie, great movie. Um, where Why is this so he confronts the person who killed his father, and he says, "Offer me money, offer me power, I don't care." So you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say. Damn, the, the steely gaze. If, if, for those of you just listening, that's just, whew. He's just dead eyes. Just He's just like drilling holes in care. his head. That's a hundred million dollars. That's, that's what that does. A hundred billion. hundred yeah, billion. That is the definition of fuck you money. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Okay. But I mean, when you when you when you link to somebody who's talking about the guy who killed children in a mall in, in Allen, Texas, 
You, you say something like it might be a bad psyop. I'm not quite sure what you meant, but... Oh, uh, in, in that particular case, uh, there was uh, a... So, somehow that, that that's not 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 that the 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 that the RCP people people were killed, but the it was I think incorrectly ascribed to be a white supremacist action, um, and the evidence for that uh, was some obscure Russian website that no one's ever heard of that had no followers, um, and the, the the company that came, that found this is Bellingcat. Right. And do you know what Bellingcat does? Psyops. Right. <laughs> I couldn't really We're good there, Kyle. I mean, it's just like <laughs> <laughs> great freeze frame. But exactly right. I mean, I, I love this because it's it's saying there's something that's more important than my bottom line. Mm-hmm. And that is the articulation of what I think is true. And I place such a high value on that. And I think that's what will create a better society. So that's what I'm going to do. I would actually, so I would have a little bit of a different frame on that because I think it's actually speaking to almost, you know, the ultimate capitalist ideal, right? It's like my, what well, all that matters here is that I'm running a successful business that's making money for our shareholders, right? Like that money talks, right? And in, in the, the marketplace, especially a free marketplace, prices are the only thing that, that matters. It doesn't matter like what you tweet. It matters what you can sell things for and what people will buy them for. Mm. Yeah. And he's kind of setting the standard to say, I don't care if you don't like my political point of view. Do you want a Tesla? Exactly. They're a great car, you know, or a rocket, you know, whatever. (laughs) Do you want a rocket? (laughs) (laughs) Want to give me some money to tweet? right up. (laughs) Exactly. Eight dollars. I I, I have a theory on this and that is that the, um, okay, so the tolerance paradox was a idea from Karl Popper that basically said, you can't allow intolerant people in a tolerant society because the intolerant people will eventually take over that society if you tolerate their intolerance. So that's why Antifa, right, will say our goal is to punch a Nazi, right? They define Nazi as everybody that they don't like basically. Right. And they're saying you're intolerant and therefore you're opposing us. And therefore we should, I should commit violence against you because that the problem with the tolerance paradox is that there's, there is a request to make everything political, to make everything a division line between, are you being tolerant or not? And then we're not defining tolerance. We're not talking about what that is. And I would suggest what he's requiring is saying the value I create for you as the provider, as the CEO of this business is far greater than your opposition to my political views. And so you're going to have to tolerate them mm-hmm. if what you want is to get, is to do commerce with me. Well, and I think that's the, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, our, our belief in a free market mechanism and, mm-hmm. and a mechanism of free enterprise, right? Because yeah, maybe tolerance and intolerance matters in a system of government that we're all fo- forced to participate in, right? Or coerced mm-hmm. into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't matter when you're just buying and selling in the, mar- in the free marketplace. None of that matters. All right. You don't care who made your car. You mm-hmm. don't care what the color of the skin was. If you're a racist, if you're a sexist, you don't care what gender they were. Exactly. What you care about is the value of the car that you buy. Um, and then, and I think that's the, the important part of that from the cultural point of view is him saying that moment where he's saying, no, the federal, the federal government interfered in the elections using the hundred bottom laptop story. And I will say this, and I don't care how much money I leave. That's a huge watershed kind of moment for the culture to say, no, this is actually what real tolerance is. Mm -hmm. It's not only saying 
I'm going to, I'm not, I'm going to employ people I disagree with. I'm going to work with people I disagree with, but I'm also going to have the courage to lose money, to say what I think is true and require of you tolerance for those things. If you agree with me on my other missions, you think we should go to Mars. Great. You're going to have to deal with the fact that I think George Soros is Magneto, you know, like, like that's just, that's a good thing. It is a good I, thing. Yeah. I, and I think so many people, uh, look up to him for, you know, obviously his success and, and other things. He's, you know, a great follow on Twitter, obviously, uh, that it's going to hopefully encourage people to be more open, uh, about their, their views, whether or not they're widely accepted. I hope that's the case. Right. And, and not that, you know, and I know that there, there was some criticism of what he said regarding George Soros as it's going to embolden anti-Semites or, or whatever, you know, to take action. And again, we've talked about this before that, you know, the, the speech isn't violence. Like the person that commits violence is responsible for that. Not, not someone who, who voiced an idea that could maybe be construed as a thing that produced an action by another person, right? That's just not a valid argument in my, in my view. So I hope that the result of what he's saying is something that inspires people to be more open and forthright with their ideas, even if they are not part of the orthodoxy. Well, I suggest that George Soros isn't only feature isn't that is, isn't that he's Jewish. He oh, has yeah. other features as a human being. Cause none of our features are only our race, yeah. right? Our genetic background. He has a person with ideas and political beliefs yeah. and things he's he done in his a life. Successful company. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and he, it's, it's so crazy to me to say like, he's comparing their philosophical point of view and saying, this is the same thing as a, anti-Semite attack. Well, and for he those also of, helped fund a, a coup in Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. Uh, yeah, I, the I mean, NGO but, participation in 2014 made on is what, what he's checking out. Definitely go Wikipedia that because it's very interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to throw a note in the show notes. But I mean, for those that aren't aware, I mean, Elon was specifically criticizing the fact that he's funded these DAs, right, that are not prosecuting real crimes and that that's tearing the fabric of society, right? And that's why he said, you know, in his tweet, he's an enemy of humanity or he hates humanity or whatever, because he, I mean, his actions are sort of suggesting that he wants to see cities fail, right? right? He wants criminals on the loose. He, it, it's resulting in lawlessness and all, all this, all the rest. So. Right. And I, I'll point out, and I know we're, we're almost time to wrap, but as the comic book nerd in the group, uh, so the Magneto comparison is interesting, right? Because Magneto was a mutant supremacist. Right. So it's one vision of being different and using your difference to create your ability to dominate others. Right. You get power and you should use that power because that power makes you like a God. Right. And then there's the human reaction to the mutants that show up in society and it's to oppress the weird minority. Right. And there's lots of great civil rights and civil liberties discussions that come out of the comics from that. The third and the noble vision is the MLK junior vision. And it's the professor X vision, which is that, peace, cooperation, and de-emphasizing our differences while leveraging our gifts and abilities to serve one another for the common better good. That is such a clear story about how to think about that. And if you're saying like, this guy's Magneto, like, because what he's doing is he's trying to make these, you know, make these people into things that are, that are going to tear apart society. He's going to position people in these ways. That is a, I think a totally legitimate criticism. And yeah, just ask yourself, are you Professor X? Are you Magneto? Or are you the humans if you're talking about x-men um yeah so great That's place it, to wrap. Yeah. yeah thank you so much for listening and i keep on taking over because i'm used to you not being here you're I, doing this great is, this man. is weird yeah. oh man i'm still coming back from vacation so <laughs> i'm glad you're on the ball because i i obviously missed the uh you know the dress shirt memo as well so i feel a little <laughs> underdressed here but it's been a lot of fun kendall thanks so much for coming and join us on the liberty portal podcast we appreciate you thank you 
uh, we will make sure to put all your contact stuff and uh, ways to reach out to Frontier Institute in the show notes. Kyle, thanks for uh, pulling double duty. We appreciate you, sir. Yep. David, thank you. And especially thank you for uh, keeping the train rolling while I was away. That, that meant a lot. And I w- it was really fun to tune in from across the pond and, and drop my comments in the, you know, in the <laughs> chat. Uh, it, was, it was great. And also one last note, two last notes. One, please, if you haven't yet, like, subscribe, follow, uh, drop us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And uh, by the time this comes out, there will also be a uh, a broadcast of the event that you two are about to be a part of tonight, which is a roundtable discussing the future of uh, housing in Montana with all of the zoning reforms that have, have come about in this legislative session. So if you're interested in that topic, there will be a lot more information uh, in, in that video. So definitely check that out. And... Uh, For everybody here, thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.